this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Oh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to Sunday for History of Westeros Time. It's not exactly a Valar Reredus episode. It is in part. So I, I don't want to give the standard Valar Reredus intro, but the vibes are present. Today's episode is a little different. We have an agenda of variety today. We're going to... First of all, discuss Ice and FireCon. We've got some great costumes to show, just a few events to talk about, some panels, some things we learned, just some fun stuff. Uh, then we're going to talk Did about... Did you? You went to Ice and FireCon? Yeah. How about that? Me too. Yeah. All I got was this shirt. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got tales from David J. Peterson, a lot of cool info, past, present, and future of Game of Thrones on television. He's been part of everything they've done. He knows things that no one had known until recently. He, he shared some, some stuff he hadn't shared before. We got to talk to him quite a bit. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. And third, but actually first, because we're going to do this one first, is questions and comments from Valar Reedus to date this year. And of course, any questions y'all may have for us today during the stream are, of course, welcome. But when we have Valar Reedus episodes, we usually focus on questions that pertain to the subject at hand. What ends up happening with that schedule is we end up with people who ask a question maybe a month after, right? Or, you know, they didn't catch the live stream or they had a thought later. We've got a decent collection of that. Good thoughts, anecdotes, a few corrections as well. And over the course of this year, well, that's piled up a bit. So we'll, we'll take care of that in the first part and then move on to the con stuff and the David J. Peterson stuff. 
And so this will be a little bit lighter of an episode in terms of the vibe. We aren't getting deep into the material, though there is going to be some deep moments. So it's a little lighthearted vibe today. Sean, with that in mind, with this lighthearted vibe that we've got going today, what tasty beverage are you quenching your thirst with? This is the protein berry naked drink mixed with the purple haze bang drink, which is grape, mixed with uh, Mountain Dew, just standard Mountain Dew. Okay, right and on. It's very good. I would like to note that if you went to Ice and Fire Con and went to the History of Westeros Radio Westeros meetup, you might have gotten to try one of Sean's concoctions because we did set up a little beard bar at the back. The actual beard bar, it was called. We, we, we brought all these ingredients that Sean typically has in his drinks and people got to check in. And have their own version. We'll probably do it again next year. On the other side of things, show Ashea some love, y'all. She has COVID and she is, you know, showing that show must go on attitude. Sitting here with a mask right in the on. corner with a mask on. <laughs> my mask. I've doing been, what's got to be done. You yeah, know? I've been quarantined up in the room all week because yeah. Aziz did not get COVID. Us. COVID's Funnily weird enough. that way, y'all. It's yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah. We were together all weekend, but I didn't get much sleep, and he got enough sleep, so that could be the difference, but, you know, I'm just weaker than him, we... I think, is the, is the clear um, story here. We may have all, or she it's may have gotten it at Climber strength. Climber strength. No, it's because <laughs> I'm wearing this... Branzig. Branzig shirt. One of my... Scared COVID off. Yeah, no. Branzig is immune to COVID and all other diseases. So COVID just said, oh, well, we can't get him. We'll move right on. Even though I'm wearing the shirt for the first time, Branzig, you know, time travel, you know, it it makes sense somehow. Yeah, somehow (laughs) that I can't explain. But no, I'm mostly fine because I was vaxxed and boosted. So it's been pretty mild. Definitely some sore throat and brain fog has, has gotten me pretty hard the last couple of days in terms of the exhaustion. And um, so if I'm a little spacey today, that is why I will fully blame anything on the brain fog. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you still trucking along here. Uh, the show must go on. Vibe is strong and we appreciate it. Also, uh, oh, Sean, go ahead. I just was going to say I'm, I'm rooting for you, Z's, but look, when I got COVID, Reed and I, like, within our own house, we're wearing masks in separate rooms, and a week later, she got it. Like, uh, I, I feel like it might you might be destined. <laughs> yeah, it may just happen anyway. Hopefully, I get to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's better for us to stagger which one of us is sick at a time so we can take care of each <laughs> yeah. other. So hopefully, <laughs> yeah. that is Hopefully, staggered. I don't get symptoms if I do get it. I have tested. Obviously, I've tested it several times, and I'm, I'll probably test again tomorrow or something. Yeah, well, but, I, yeah. I keep wanting him to keep testing because maybe then I'll be able to come downstairs. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be the silver lining <laughs> if I had it. Then we won't have to stay apart anymore. <laughs> it was it was a little relief when Rita did get it. Like, okay, I guess we could take our masks off now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really like wearing them 24. You have to wear it in your own house. It's... That's strange. Anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but fortunately, our symptoms were pretty mild. We haven't been vaccinated and everything. So. Yeah. Now, as far yeah, as the would. convention goes, that you would expect maybe a bunch of people got it. That's not the case. There's been four cases yeah. that I'm familiar with so far, of which yeah. I'm one. Out of 350-ish people, so that's not too bad. You would, you know, certainly it's not approximately one percent. So. Yeah, yeah. So that's not so bad. It may have even been, you know, at the airport or something like maybe they did too. Who knows? It's not. We, we're not sure, and it's not really worth thinking about. It's just that's what happened, and let's get to it. 
As usual, we like to start with a trivia question. And, well, let's have a good one. I think this one might be maybe a little bit easier. But I'm going to give... But we like to talk about cats, so... I'll make every once in a while we need an easier one. And that fits with the vibe for today. We're taking it a little easier today. So the question is, what are Tommen's cats' names? He has three kittens. What are their names? There's only four cats in the entire series that have names. The other one also lives at the Red Keep. is a famous one, the one with the missing ear, right? The, the one that Arya follows down. And that's only a nickname. We're not sure if that's its real name. So anyway... There's lots of cats in the story. There's cats all over the place, but those are the only three plus one that have names. So what are Tommen's cats' names? Answer at the end, as usual. So corrections, clarifications, comments. The three C's. If you had a question and are wondering if we're going to get to it, like if you asked it months ago, good chance we are. But feel free to ask it again during the live stream. I'm not going to answer it twice. It won't be a problem if you want to just make sure it gets in there. Now, I'm going to soapbox for about 30 seconds here about corrections and being accurate. So be prepared. (laughs) Here it comes. I think in today's society, maybe it's more of a Western thing. Maybe it's just an American thing. I don't think it is, but I'm just giving a caveat with regards to my own perspective here first, which is that I think there's a tendency, especially online, but in person as well, for people to just insist they're not wrong about something just to go to the mat and be like no i'm not wrong i'm not wrong i was right i was right and this is so i get so frustrated with that i used to have the same problem myself and so i'm not some like person that's way ahead of the game i'm talking to myself as i say this it's not important to be right it's important to be accurate right it's important to tell the truth as you know it and to and if you were wrong then just admit it who cares we're wrong all the time a hundred times a day i'm probably wrong (laughs) You know, like on little things, big things, whatever. Well, 101 now. 101, yeah. See, because it was more than 100 <laughs> or less than 100. So that's why I want to be, I want to do what we can, do our little part to whenever we're wrong about something, just admit it, correct it, move on. Simple as that. <laughs> and I think if if you find someone out there in the world that has that attitude, I mean, I think that you can trust them more, right? In general, if you know that someone is willing to admit their mistakes or just willing to correct themselves, I feel like that person is generally going to be more dependable on with information. Maybe not with other things, but with information, you know. So anyway, uh, was that 30 seconds? Did I make 102 mistakes? <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you all appreciate that because I, I, uh, I think it's important. I don't want to go on too much about this, but, uh, but you sparked a couple of thoughts to me. One reason people tend to do that is because a lot of times it's connected to some bigger picture, right? Mm-hmm. If they have some yeah. theory or some idea in their mind and there's some factual piece of data that supports that and they find out that data is wrong, well, now it threatens their whole theory. So they yeah. have to, it's not That's that true. easy sometimes to let it go. Um, That's a good point. Sometimes maybe it's debatable too. It might be close or... Yeah. Some, like yeah. if someone said... There are a hundred guys out there, and then someone counted their ninety-eight. You're like, well, I mean, it's basically a hundred, and if someone, I, you could see how sometimes someone might, yeah, that's maybe an, an easy one to let go. But if it was really seventy, that's enough that maybe you should correct that. You know? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And it's like, where, where is the line? And that's why you get into yeah. like, just be open with it's possible. Like, don't just be so strict with no, 
I meant this and this is what I said. And, uh, you know, I uh, just leave a little leeway with, with all your statements, you know? Yeah. I was like going to say, I personally, I try to just be uncertain about things in the first place. Cause that's a good it's hard to yeah. really, you know, however much you think, you know, someone, a lot of times you find out you're wrong. And that's, and that's kind of frustrating sometimes too, because people respond to confidence really well. And, and sometimes that, yes. but that's sometimes that confidence is misplaced or, or unearned mm-hmm. and people fake it all the time. And that bothers me too. Cause it's like, you're getting ahead. You're trying to like get an edge on other people with your, it's basically dishonest if you're doing it on purpose. I mean, maybe that's like calling something wrong when you say 90 instead of 100. Is that really wrong or is it just like slightly off? Like that, that's another thing where you're just like, well, it's kind of semantics. It's kind of your own personal opinion on what, what wrong, what yeah, dishonest means. Correct, but... Yeah, so even that comes down to your personal attitude, I think, in some spots. But anyway, there was I a, think you're wrong. A moment. <laughs> I'm wrong. It's like, nah, you're just wrong. <laughs> it, it reminds me of a moment when I was in the army and we were going to go on a jump and the commander was asking, there's like a, a, a weather, you know, there's like someone who's in charge or responsible for keeping up with the weather, which when you're jumping out of planes, winds and stuff matter. And they're, you know, they're trying to plan something that thousands of people are involved in like three days from now. And the commander's asking the weather officer, is it going to rain? He's like, well, sir, seventy percent chance. It's like, is it going to rain? Yes or no? <laughs> like, what am I, uh, God? I mean, no. come on. Told <laughs> him what he wanted to hear. But... Like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain, or he's going to be like, I, t- yeah. you, you told me, you lied to me <laughs> about the rain. <laughs> so, another thing, folks, this episode, another thing that's slightly different about this episode is we're going to have a lot of photos in it, screen in, um, photos from the con and a couple other spots, but the. So if you're listening on podcast version, I highly suggest you you watch it. And this is a, an opportunity for us to explain a little bit of the behind-the-scenes technology that's going on. Things have changed in the podcast world a little bit. There's a little bit more emphasis on video. Spotify, who is not directly our host, we're with Anchor, which is owned by Spotify. They're making a big push for more video, kind of like YouTube. But YouTube's got a vast, huge head start. Now, obviously, everything we put out is on YouTube. It's on YouTube live right this moment as we're talking. We this episode is going to be downloaded and uploaded to Spotify as a video, as is without any editing. Normally what we do is we put it up as a video or we we just take the the audio from the YouTube video, edit that down and then it's just a podcast without any sites, no visuals. But because Spotify is enabling more videos, we're going to put up videos more often. But we still want to have the the editing quality for the podcast version. Sometimes, sometimes I cut out as much as 20 minutes. That's rare, but I do occasionally cut out as much as 20 minutes of ums and uhs or mistakes or what have you. And so I'm um, just curious, those of you all who listen on podcasts, I'm curious as a listener, if this experience is any different for you and if you notice some of these differences. So just a little tidbit there for y'all to keep in the back of your mind. If you already watch the videos, then this will seem... Pretty normal, <laughs> especially if you already watch on YouTube. So, yes, basically, if you're a podcast listener who doesn't normally watch, you can watch this on the Spotify app or on YouTube as well. Yeah. And I assume, you know, in another year or two, some more pod platforms will probably add video. It's, it's really going that way. And in fact, YouTube is getting into podcasts. It's like all the circles are closing. And yeah, like if you're in po- if the podcast companies are doing videos and the video companies are starting to do podcasts. So they're all just meeting in the middle and doing all the same stuff, but with different focuses, different business platforms. And we're just one of a, a bajillion podcasters out there. We just have to go with the flow and do with what, what fits with us best and hopefully do it in a way that doesn't cause any problems for you all out there. 
there's all kinds of platforms and devices and it's i think easier to make a a podcast than a, a video because there's you know an extra layer of production or whatever but i, I feel like the draw there videos i think as a default are better because you can still just listen you don't have to watch it right yeah, you could just exactly. put the video on spotify or youtube and still listen without seeing it but then you have the option if you want to see the facial expressions or pictures that come up or if others. you don't have the bandwidth which is a real that's a realistic oh, yeah. logistical issue like a podcast is generally like 100 200 megabytes whereas <laughs> a video of the same length can be like four gigabytes 10 gigabytes mm. depending on how many visuals are in it or or well, Shay, i would know the numbers better but yeah anyways they can be much larger like a hundred times bigger Shay, I think you're muted. Oh. I was muted. It's not important. I am too tired to repeat what I just said. <laughs> COVID will get you that way. Yeah, so what she's saying is, yeah, there's the sizes are different, and the, the logistics of the file size is a big part of it. But but technology keeps improving. That becomes less and less of an issue. So more and more companies are like, well, almost everyone can get a video in seconds on their phone now. Now it's a little more, uh, it's a market for, well, not everyone, but, you know, a huge amount of people. So... Anyway, let's let's talk about the uh, let's get to the questions and comments. We'll start with the Barrow Kings episode. Some some uh, we've I got these sorted by the episode the comments were made in. Starting with Robbie P. Uh, nice King, keep my wife's name out of your effing mouth. The records. Okay, I will. <laughs> no one knows who Night Queen is. <laughs> the record. We don't know that much about Night King either. What's funny about that is both Night King and Will Smith were Men in Black. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were also both Will Smith was King Richard in that. Oh yeah, <laughs> that award that he was getting. That's true, Kings. That's right. Good point. Good point. Uh, Cranig woman. He's a prince and, of Bel Air too. True. <laughs> well, you got to be a prince before you're a king. Usually, yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. you carve out your own kingdom, but you know, <laughs> that's uh, that reference was very fresh. Hmm. So, a Cranig woman says, "Oh my God, a Veep reference! Now you have to do a mashup episode stream." So that one's for you, Ashea. Oh, by the way, <laughs> on the, yeah, and for Sean too. That's why I was rewatching it. it was because Sean's watching it for the first time all the way through. He was. I, I just got to that episode, Sean, that you were on most recently with uh, where, where they go down to the south and see Gene Smart's character. Like, yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah. definitely, definitely all on board with any Veep references. What was the Veep reference? Oh, it was because I don't remember at this point. Oh, I, I vaguely do remember. We were. Um, uh, now I, I lost it. Oh, well, I'll think about it. Okay. Yeah, maybe it'll come to you later. Anyway, or if someone in the chat remembers. Brendan, oh, I remember. We I made remember, so many Veep references. I, I, I remember now. It was because I was talking about, they make this joke about what Selena Meyer will look like when she leaves the presidency, you know, like what, what she'll look like. And, 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 and she aged up. Yeah, but she hasn't yeah. aged at all because she's just going to, she's not going to be president again. So she looks <laughs> the same age. It was that. Okay, a uh, question from, or comment from Brendan Towngate. He says, so many Lord of the Rings parallels in this one. Semantics of prophecy is another one. Regarding the first king prophecy relating to living man, the direct parallel is the saying that no man can kill the witch king of Angmar, and Eowyn ends up killing him. So no man can kill the witch king of Angmar. Eowyn is a woman. <laughs> so we have seen that in The Song of Ice and Fire as well, both on TV and in the books. That's um, a nice little semantic trick of, the standard phrasing of man meaning all people when you look at it as ah, that's as man meaning male gender <laughs> so it's a kind of i like i like when that is used because it points out that 
why do we always say man when we mean like human or, or person? Person. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. So, I mean, I know why we do, but <laughs> we should not, maybe not. Why know. we still do is more of a question. Right. That, that's a better way to phrase it. Yeah. So that's great. I love the Lord of the Rings parallels and Song of Ice and Fire. There's so many of them and I'm not as well versed in Lord of the Rings by far as the Song of Ice and Fire. So there's, they still come up for me. I'm like, oh yeah, well, I didn't even know that one. I don't know how your brain could hold all that information if you were as well versed in Lord of the Rings as you were. In Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> My head would just like I would be spilling out. There'd be like sentences just pouring out. And be like, oh, you've is that Gondor coming out of your ear? <laughs> Ooh, the Witch King of Earwax. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Mother says, if you're a fan of the Great Northern Conspiracy, Lady Dustin was certainly able to see through fake Arya and is simply there to save her skin and bide some time, same as Lord Vanderly. Going into the crypts lets her see evidence for Bran and Rickon surviving and hiding. I also don't think she hates Ned Stark as much as he tells Theon. She tells Theon all this stuff with the expectation that he will pass the info on, so of course she will feed him a story that solidifies her position. Yeah, th this is expanding on the topic we discussed there. I like this detail. Certainly, comparing it to Manderley is interesting. I don't know that we did that. Do you remember this conversation we had, Sean, about why Lady Dustin was asking all these Stark questions and telling these things to Theon and... We discussed how yeah, Theon, I, I, she would she expected it to get back to Roos to make it make her loyalty seem firmer, you know, or to seem solid. Uh, yeah, I remember reading that and reflecting on it when I read that. Like, why was she telling him all this? So this it seemed what I think of as like a a TV tool just exposition to fill the audience in on something. But that's not really George's mo. So yeah, or or it could be like, that plus be. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um. I, I I suspected that there, she was planting seeds or had some ulterior motive or something. So, hmm. right on. And yeah, so there's the I like the thought of the ulterior motive here. And with Manderley, it's the same sort of thing: biding time, getting, um, letting things play out a little more, allowing more people to see Roos's problems, allow people to see Ramsey and realize this is the guy they're going to be following if they stay this course. And maybe give Stannis more time to have things happen. It is interesting as well, something I hadn't thought about, or at least we didn't mention. I have thought about it. We didn't mention it when we talked about this last time in, in the Barrow Kings episode, was that if you recall, Theon is asked by some of the washerwomen, the, the wildling women, the free folk that are with Mance, where the crypts are. And then Lady Dustin also wants to know where the crypts are. And so she, Theon wonders what their deal is. But one very strong possibility is that they're working with, with Manderley. And if that's the case, then he's also wants to know stuff about the crypts. They all have this information about the crypts they're trying to get. And maybe it's to figure out whether Bran and Rickon were down there or other stuff. There's a lot to it. And I think there's even more that we're probably missing that when we when we get some resolution on this, we're like, oh, that too. <laughs> I think we're going to have some more of that. But yeah, but we'll see. Good clarification there. Uh, further clarification on the Eowyn thing. Guilty Undertaker says Eowyn was a woman, but of the race called men. Mary was male, but he was a hobbit, and so also not a man. Okay, good point. Yeah, technically, yeah, yeah. And I guess dwarf and elf also are, well, elf and, yeah, that clearly aren't of the race of man either. But male versus man. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Normally we don't worry about that because there's, there aren't elves, dwarfs, no, there aren't <laughs> other, <laughs> you know, bipeds with names walking around in society <laughs> at least not these days back in the neanderthal days when the denisovans were around as well maybe but 
I don't know. I don't th- I don't they didn't have the same language either. <laughs> uh Guilty Undertaker also says for obscure references there's a background Lord of the Ring character called Castamir the Usurper. Castamir, it is spelled differently. Mm. But that's cool. Okay. I like that. Castamir the Usurper, right on. And the the Reigns did sort of make their push against the Lannisters at that point. It was an attempted usurping of sorts. Uh Liat R says, interesting symboli- symbolically that the Reach version of Garth represents life versus the Barrow Kings who represent death. And they both claim title first kings of the first men, one through this portal of, of death and one through this portal of life. That's a great catch. That's really neat to seeing that book end like that. What, do you, what does that suggest to you, Sean? Any thoughts on that? Well, just one of many sort of, uh, I want to say parallels or opposites almost, but that we discovered talking about the north, the wall versus the neck uh, on opposite ends, but both like defenses in a state of re- disrepair yeah. in, in modern times, at least. And uh, there's, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, a lot of times we look for, a lot of times we think of parallels as being things that are uh, you know, similar or identical, maybe in different time periods, different locations. But I also think it's a parallel if it's an opposite in similar locations or some different time periods. Yeah, that's a that's well said, well point. The another thing I would add to that is we talk a lot, especially in the in the proto days when the gods are just developing as ideas, when we have these early gods that aren't around anymore, and how so many gods are. Uh, uh, are animalistic or naturalistic, like gods of the sky, god of the clouds, god of the river, god of the forest, that kind of thing. Claiming dominion over life and death is a similar sort of concept, right? You're 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 owning or controlling something that's fundamental to existence that you you can't escape from, that you must deal with, that is uh, ubiquitous and as a human being claiming dominion over that is, 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 is a real power move, right? That's usually the province yeah. of the gods saying we're the pro- we're you're, power. You're putting yourself death. on par with the gods. Yeah. So it really is a power move, I think. And um, of course that's pretty clear. We're talking about Kings. So that it's already, yeah, of course it's a power move, but, but it gets into the detail of why that sounds so strong and why people would respect that, or even maybe associate it with, with the symbolism and with the supernatural ideas. They may even think some people may even believe the Kings have, actual powers or actual conduits to the gods and yeah um it might also be an indication of a difference in mentality or culture that one king in one land wants to be related to god of death and in another land wants to be related to the god of life it's like a it's it makes sense when one is coming from more fertile grounds and one's coming from a harsher territory that they might have a different perspective Mm, right on all right moving on to the kingdom of sarnor we talked about slavery, and we were wondering whether they had slaves. It wasn't mentioned directly. We guess there's a pretty good chance. Sean, I think you were you suggested it was even more likely than that. Benjamin Vonstein has a, not a pushback, but another take here that's maybe argues for less certainty on that, especially because Sarnor has so much in common with Persia, Achaemenid Persian and Persia in, in particular. And he clarifies, Achaemenid Persia had formal policies against slaveholding which made it all the more amusing that the slave-dependent Greeks would call the Persians slaves to their king, which is more a statement of their narrow band of who was considered a citizen, mostly. It was close to an oligarchy. And constantly that was a a thing in ancient Greece where the oligarchic party would kick out the Democrats and the Democrats would win and kick out the oligarchs. But the Democrats 
in this context, we're, we're a lot like oligarchs. <laughs> they're just less money than the ones that they're calling oligarchs. <laughs> so, for example, I, when the Macedonians under Alexander, or after Alexander, after his empire fell, when they... Athens tried to break free and become independent again. Oh, Athens and his democracy tries to break free. But they lost. And the Macedonians, who, of course, are the ones who beat the Persians, they forced a new constitution on Athens. And what it, and it just reduced the number of citizens. It was like there were like 32,000 citizens. And he's like, now, now there's only 12,000 citizens. And he basically took away voting rights. He disenfranchised two-thirds of the voters. Um, and basically the sets of property requirements higher. It's like, okay, you have to own this much property to vote. Instead of just owning any property, you have to own a certain amount of property to vote. So, like, of course, that's you can see why I call that an oligarchy. Only people with means are the ones in charge. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, so that's proto-democracy. So these terms get really confusing because, yeah, the Greeks are calling Persians slaves to their king while they're holding actual slaves on their estates. I mean, yeah, you're slaves to your, they're, you're slaves to, they're slaves to their king, but you are a slave owner. <laughs> so they're basically not saying slavery is wrong. They're saying it's wrong to be a slave. That's their approach. Yeah. They're saying you're weak because you're a slave, not slavery is wrong. It's, it's not you're weak because <laughs> your king has enslaved you or you're weak because your king has enslaved you not because you're it's wrong to be a slave <laughs> you know <laughs> so it's, it's this ancient mindset is is not always like we think of course it's wrong to be a slave but it's not they don't think that way no it's not immoral to be a slave in their worldview it's weak and that's immoral in their sense which is kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around it's like weakness is immoral i mean that seems like more of a inborn or something you can't control or i don't know in some ways anyway some parts of it you can but anyway that's a, it, it reminds me of a keep going a yeah, couple go things the idea that the barbarians weren't so much a people that behaved a certain way as they were a people that aren't us yeah 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 and also they must behave a certain way if they're not us you know that's like a, a semantic way to separate yourself from you know, less quote unquote lesser people with slaves, barbarians, whatever. Even if they weren't really lesser, they were just different. Uh, they probably weren't even really different. They were just in a different location. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it gets further. Uh, it gets further confusing because Benjamin goes on to clarify that Persia did have slavery, despite saying they had, despite the laws against slavery, because they were an empire and they would sometimes they would often allow conquered territory to keep some of their old laws, which included slavery. So, yeah. yeah, they had policies against slavery, but that's not the same thing as not having slavery. True. Colonial America had policies against slavery, but they also had slaves, well pervasive slave economic based slavery. Um, yeah, it's like saying and, racism and, didn't go away because it's illegal. Right. Like there's yeah. <laughs> right. Like it's harder. Yeah. Like keeping a slave is a lot harder than being like racist in private. But it's, it's still it's, the same kind of concept where. Yeah, it's part of why I'm. I'm confident, fairly confident, you know, I don't think it's like, oh, maybe they didn't have slaves uh, or, or, you know, maybe they did. I think it's maybe there's a remote chance they didn't. But even in these situations where there are policies against it, it's still there. Yeah. You know? so, and we get into that semantic it, discussion, too, where like, well, technically thralls aren't slaves or technically a peasant that can't move can't move if they want to and it has all the other restrictions like they're basically a slave i would argue that technically they are slaves. yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah, i mean Uh, i agree and it's uh i even it made me even more certain i wish i could remember now who pointed it out but that there is a difference between uh slaves existing in a society and a society being based on a slave economy right right and i realized that might not be the case 
yeah, that might even be uh, very, it might be very unlikely that Sarnor had a slave-based economy. Yeah, but I think it's very likely that they did have slaves. Yeah, or or the equivalent, like we said, like serfs, thralls, that kind of thing. Right. Something that they we would basically say may as well be, yeah, yeah, six of one, half a dozen of the other kind of deal. Uh, furthermore, on the topic of Mongols and Dothraki and slaughter, there's a little bit of clarification here as well. Um, from the start, they accepted surrender and assimilated conquered peoples, but that was one of the things, and that was one of the things that separated them from rival nomadic confederations who were most likely to just straight up murder and assimilation. But it was the the standard sort of ancient warfare business where if you surrender right away, you can expect to not. Well, it's still going to be awful, but it won't be the wholesale complete wiping out of the entire city and all the structures and the animals and the wells that we discussed at the time several weeks ago. And he also clarifies that's why Chinggis's Genghis, same thing, administration was quickly filled with quote, quote, foreigners because um, they once they hit the more urbanized areas that had some they had so much experience with governing these large groups. They had taken so many cities and managed these large populations so many times they, they gained experience with it uh, experience in awful yeah experience in genocide yeah. it was very efficient what they were doing because the threat like once they do completely destroy a few cities early in their campaign when they come up to new cities they are way more likely to back down yeah which means you don't lose any troops in the battle to take those cities you don't need as many troops to maintain control over it uh, you now have their resources to go attack the next city. It was uh, so they I, I think a lot of the cities they had destroyed were like in southern Persian area. Like, you know, basically when they got to new areas that didn't know of them yet or thought for some reason that they could stand up to them. Like, all right, we're going to kill everyone. And they <laughs> did. I mean, it, I didn't even realize it, that, you know, conservative estimates of how many people Genghis Khan killed was like. Four million. Oof. And that doesn't account for things like when they kill populations that were farming land. The, like the starvation. Now food that was going to the other mm-hmm. populations, they starved. So like the, the, Pretty the, hard the to keep high end that, estimates yeah. are like 40 million. Like 10% of the Earth's population might have been destroyed, at least indirectly, hmm. by Genghis Khan's yeah. actions. It's just unfathomable. Yeah, know? it's really hard to make that number feel real when it's people, you know? Yeah. Uh, we, our brains aren't meant to parse that many individuals as an, when they're a large number like that. It's, it's that whole law of large numbers. It's just, our brains just don't, can't process that. I know I'm not going to say quite right, but I think it's a Stalin quote, like, you know, the statistic or whatever, 18, 18 people dying is a tragedy. 18,000 people dying is a statistic. And when it's 18,000 people dying a thousand years ago. It's even more of a statistic because even you can more. think, well, they yeah. would have, there's less, you have a little less sympathy because they would have died by now anyway, but it's still, but then you, I don't know, I feel bad thinking that way, you know, like maybe, I don't know. Yeah, like it, they still went through suffering and yeah. families. Yeah, and, and still people, it, it, Never yeah. mind like the, the, the potential of those people, like think how much humanity might have been held back, how many of those people might have been some sort of inventor yeah, or doctor, totally you're right. or, you yeah, know, like, a writer, an artist, and also they destroyed the cities. They destroyed the libraries. They burnt the churches. You know? Yeah, Rome, like Romans yeah. killed Archimedes, the greatest inventor maybe who ever lived or one of. And they just didn't know who they wanted to capture him. But the soldier didn't know who he was and just killed him. Yeah. Oops, sorry. 
You know, like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> so anyway, moving on. Uh, Victor Munier, apologize if I say your name wrong. There's probably going to be a few of those today. I don't have a pronunciation guide for commenters' names. <laughs> a joke he caught in The World of Ice and Fire concerning Sarnor and the doom that came to Sarnath, the Lovecraft story. The Sarna, the Sarnori people in the Lovecraft story commit genocide against this, the race uh, of the Ibanese. But on Planetos, the Ibanese save the last Sarnori. <laughs> mm, that's true. Conversion. Yeah, that's true. Boy, if the Ibanese knew about what happened in the uh, Lovecraft <laughs> world, maybe they wouldn't have saved the Sarns. Like, you got in a parallel dimension, not parallel dimension where we have... Everything's different except of our names. You guys were really assholes to us, but <laughs> uh, that's a great catch. There's another kind of parallel mirror image there, a little bit like the first king and the Garth Greenhand comparison, but a little more meta in this case. Dan Windsor says, no four foot 11 white guy heroes. Sean, did you miss the Mission Impossible franchise? <laughs> Maybe the Native Americans had lifts in their moccasins. <laughs> <laughs> That was from a discussion of like how history man. typically yeah. presents, you know, the, the the heroes are a tall white man and the, the villains are short Native Americans or whatever. And, but uh, you know, unfortunately, I did not miss the, the Mission Impossible. <laughs> you wish you had. Like, we'll all have our own heroes, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I loved Mission Impossible, the TV show, when I was younger, the the old school version. When they made the movie and had the main guy become the bad guy, that was a terrible twist. That's like, yeah, that'd be like if you watch G.I. Joe as a kid and, like, Duke turns into a bad guy. Like, the <laughs> most G.I. Joe of the G.I. Joes, like, becomes a bad guy, like, on like out of nowhere. I'd be like, that's the twist? That's that's lazy writing. <laughs> Give me a real twist. Don't just, let's make the bad guy. Let's make the good guy a bad guy. Oh, ho, ha, that'll teach. That'll show him, like lame <laughs> anyway uh weak rather i shouldn't use that word um matt reese says uh gravity the gravity and people we don't know how to say that word remember these were the mastodon hunters that we talked about the one the ones that were six foot tall on average well that apparently lit a little research fire under matt and he did some additional looking and there are more interesting facts some of which he suggested and i went back and looked and found a few more things as well the women Gravidian women were five foot two on average. That is a massive difference in height. So you have six foot average height for men, five foot two for women. So that's 10 inches tall of difference. For context, in America right now, the average height for a man is five nine, for a woman is five four. So five inches difference. This is twice as high. And wait, the weight that's almost enough for me to suspect the, 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 the sample size or something. I don't understand I know, why it, it would be. So yeah, totally I don't great trust. I, I also suspect some weirdness <laughs> with sample size. It is hard to it's fathom, hard. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard, hard to, to accept, isn't that. it? It is hard to accept. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> as far as and the weight differences aren't as big either. It's a, the, the six foot average was proportioned with a 155 pound average. So six foot 155. That's. That's a skinny person right there. But, of yeah. course, they were strong because these were Mastodon mm. hunters. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the women would be about 119, 120 pounds. Now, for Americans, again, that same weight is 170 versus 197. So that weight difference is larger, too, than current, than current Americans would be. To make them even more badass, they didn't have, like, sharpened stones. So they were hunting Mastodons with bones and antlers and just 
rocks that happened to be sharp, <laughs> like that they just came that way. They would use rocks for like bashing things, but stone spearheads and arrowheads didn't come until like around the year 20,000 BC. And these, these, these folks died out around 23,000 or 21,000. So that is wild. Uh, so this just got me really thinking about where we buy tools and where we make tools versus how they perceived that. Okay. So when you want a tool, if you're like me, you go to Home Depot or something and you buy that tool. But if you're a Gravettian person living 25,000 years ago, you're like, okay, I need an awl, you know, a little pokey thing. So I need to go kill a fox and get its thigh bone. That's where an all is, in the leg of a fox. <laughs> so their Home Depot is, the, the aisle, the particular aisle in Home Depot that they are looking for is, the parallel is a specific animal <laughs> that someone taught them has the right bone for that tool. Man, that's so wild thinking about. Yeah, just, you need, oh, for that, you're going to need to go kill a cougar and get its third toe. <laughs> and the tool won't last forever either. You yeah, know? you need it's another one. Yeah. Or dole, and it's a constant process of maintenance just to survive. Um, we're so lucky to be alive in this day and time. Interesting, by the way, you know that um, uh, certain certain uh, primates will use tools. You know, yeah. they'll use sticks to get ants or rocks to break shells and stuff. But they don't just grab any old rock. They have to get one that's like the right size and weight and shape. And and when they do, they keep it. They covet it. They don't just like grab a random rock and use it. They have their rock and they'll pet share rock. it with others yeah. and keep up with it and look for more similar ones. It's a, a, amazing uh, how close the parallel to, to them like, and early humans. Like it's not a tool, but I think what, what I thought of when you said that was like how like a dog like has a specific stick that they want like no not mm -hmm. that stick not that no that i wanted my stick yeah, yeah it's a yeah. similar kind of like that's not a tool and it is a uh, an item that they're using to do something with it's mm -hmm. they're playing maybe tool of entertainment yeah maybe? it's yeah. yeah i mean you could maybe call it a tool they're definitely using an item <laughs> you know it's mm -hmm. a, for a specific purpose and so that it just really blows my mind so you gotta think about the early first men probably lived similarly where they would also have to identify certain animals that had certain of course for them it would be a little different because you'd also have things like giants around and and maybe some larger animals existed on westeros or planetos more deadly things or maybe not um but giants for sure and children i mean do you have like a child of the forest bone handled knife or something i mean that would be like a really mm -hmm. unusual ancient artifact <laughs> like a giant a giant's thigh bone or like can you even lift that i mean <laughs> <laughs> if you could like oh only big john can wield the giant's thigh <laughs> watch him lift it's like robert's warhammer <laughs> it's the equivalent <laughs> uh also the gravetian people they were superior at migrating they out migrated the neanderthals neanderthals were not good at migrating they like to be more sedentary they like to stay in one place and that's that's reflected by Neanderthals had industry. They had like the flint tool industry. Um, they would just, you'd stay in one place and you'd find a flint source and just make a bunch of flint tools and just keep doing that and trading them with other nearby villages for other stuff you need. So, of course, that's a reason to stay in one place because you find that source of flint. And, well, it's not going to be elsewhere. If you wander several miles west, well, that's not there anymore. But if you live off of animals and herds, you've got to follow the herds. And the... Sean? Even if you don't, eventually, if there's a drought or a shift in a climate or something like that, you're you, screwed. 
And they became very adept at not just following the herds, but understanding the patterns. So not just following them, but knowing where they would be. Like they, they, we know, we know there'll be a herd in this valley uh, this season, roughly speaking, and then it cuts down su- significantly on the amount of time they have to spend hunting. If they know where the animals are going to be, you just go to that place instead of just like, "Where's an animal? Let's go wander until we encounter one." Uh, things we don't think about because <laughs> I bet they were right there the in stars. the grocery store. I bet they were paying attention to You're to how right. the seasons work and how the sky changed to where the animals were and went. All right. Yeah. Well said. Um, Christina K says, I remembered what I forgot to say on the Sarnor episode. Hey, Christina, we're still going to reach out to you at some point here. You've got lots of knowledge for us, I'm sure. And here's an example. Sean suggested the invasion of Westeros would bring disease, but I don't think that's true. They aren't isolated enough from each other for a virgin soil epidemic. Okay, I don't know what virgin soil epidemic means, but I trust your conclusion here. Um I don't know. Maybe that's something we need to get a little lesson on is the, how some of these things work with that concept of, yeah, I have nothing to say here other than that's interesting. (laughs) My thought is like one reason I'm not a super expert. So if someone knows better, but my general understanding is that because there were more concentrated cities in Europe, Mm. we have been developing germs have been spread and we had had our immune systems had to deal with them. Yeah. But the Native Americans were a little bit more spread out. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't have concentrated cities where viruses were able to be fostered and spread and immunities built up to. Does that make sense? In my mind, Dothraki are similar. They're spread out in the countryside and they don't spend a lot of time in cities. And so if they suddenly get huddled onto boats and brought over to places where there are concentrated cities that might have already survived through their own viruses, yeah. they're more likely. I, I think it's more likely for the Dothraki to get disease than spread it. Yeah, most, of it, it is, most of it is livestock, is what I understand. Is the li- is the li- it's, it's, it's the closest yeah, proximity, it's the proximity to livestock that, that, yeah. that Europeans developed uh, resistance to. That, like, Remember, it's a common tale that when a lot of the natives in South America met Europeans for the first time, they'd never seen a horse before. So, yeah. nor had they ever seen a pig or a, a lot of these other animals. And the, and the Spaniards brought all that. But, <laughs> and all of them had these had they diseases. ever seen a city, right? They didn't have... Well, no, they had seen they cities. They had seen cities. They had Tenochtitlan had been around for a while. But... Well, some of them... That's you're right, but there were fewer of them. You're right. There, there weren't as many yeah. cities, but they did have them. Like, Tenochtitlan had like 200,000 people. It was really huge. Although I'm, I'm not sure what eras it did. I think it, it had it, but it did when the Spaniards invaded it. It was that big. So, um, it just yeah. it ceased to be not but, long after... You know, <laughs> you know, the natives in in the north and east coast, the Midwest of North America. That's true. There's, they didn't really have cities, you're right, yeah. and they were decided by disease. Yeah, also, so. you're right. Different in North America, much different than South America. The the and it is worth noting that it that the Amer the, the Europeans weren't catching a bunch of diseases from the natives. So it's, that's uh, true. You know, that's true. Which is, I think, maybe part of what she was saying here with that is like, well, which way, will it go both ways? Or now, grayscale is a magic disease. So that's completely other category. You know, that's like there's no yeah. there's no resistance to that. <laughs> I don't think it's not like chicken pox. We can only get it once. I don't think maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know how it works, but it's it's definitely going to follow different rules anyway. Whatever, whatever the rules are in George's world, this is probably in a separate category because it's magical. So that's important to keep in mind, too. Christina also clarifies it's not impossible to tell weight from remains estimation based on assumed body fat and muscle ratios it's actually a problem in academia because their bias is to say no fat people 
Okay. And that was uh, interesting. Yeah, she was talking basically that's very about um, yeah, with like how you you can't tell like mu- like muscle and how it pulls like on if the it bones, wears down, certain yeah, and we- like stuff like that. But the fat doesn't really leave this uh, this mark, and so they can do estimations based on like what their diets and other things, but that they are biased. Yeah, um, like it makes sense that there would be people are more. Uh, doing more exercise but that doesn't mean you aren't going to have people who aren't big yeah yeah so eat you know their just their weight carries around like the the way their digestion works or yeah there's all sorts of things yeah you're right yeah so basically there's no no record of fat on your bones there's no way for them to to know whether there was that fat there Mm -hmm. i wonder if there might even be a bias I wonder if the remains we find might be more likely to be remains of successful, quote unquote, people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so, someone who was the, the mayor of their town gets a better, bigger burial. Oh, and that person might do less physical work that, than the other people. That, right? That's they certainly might true in some societies. Yeah, the ones who got tombs. Yeah. With these folks, it's harder to say because they, you know, they, like, they don't, there aren't cities. There aren't like, there might be chiefs, but there probably isn't like a grand hierarchy there might just be some people yeah some chiefs and that's about it <laughs> maybe a shaman yeah. or something i don't know yeah it's hard to say maybe i'm maybe i'm downplaying the the complexity of it but there would have there'd be fewer specialization that we can be pretty com- uh, comfortable in like people aren't yeah or, or more yeah in a certain way like there's there's fewer total jobs to do <laughs> you know there is no janitor there's no you know data analyst <laughs> you know there's just no telephone operator so yeah it's all the it sounds really obvious to say but it's actually kind of important to keep track of all those things when you're trying to make these comparisons because it's it's such a disparate comparison in the first place from the age of heroes begins episode michael h said sam might be remembered unironically as the slayer for killing the first other similar to how brienne the beauty we talked about how brienne the beauty in the long term someone suggested at the time that that the, it'll lose the irony and they'll just remember Brienne as someone who is actually considered traditionally beautiful by the standards of her time. And they'll, they'll, they, they won't know that it was meant as mocking. Uh, maybe they will. That, that information may pa- be passed down, but it's easy. You could easily see that detail getting lost and people just taking it at face value. Irony, sarcasm, in jokes don't stand the test of time very well. Cause there's like sarcasm for one thing is the brand of sarcasm is very specific to the, the era. Right, <laughs> irony maybe a little less so, but still, it still falls off because there's no one to. Re- if some no one remembers the joke, then it's gone. It just they just remember the title. So that's a great point. Sam could be like, "Wow, the Sam guy was a real killer, a real slayer. <laughs> he was a violent, brutal man." <laughs> it's like, oh, but he was also. It's not too late. Maybe he will be. <laughs> the, the 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 reason that might be different though is because Sam might actually be someone who writes a bunch of this stuff down. We're like, wait, that's the same guy that's called the Slayer. He wrote about himself that he was kind of shy. Actually, who should we believe? So that he's one of the few examples where the truth might be a little bit more preserved because he might be the one actually writing it down. There's a little more likelihood it gets preserved. Uh, all these other things, who knows what's going to wi- write them down and. He might also, also Michael H says he might be remembered as the person that really spread the news that is responsible for teaching people the weakness of the whites and others that the dragon glass works because he's the first one to do that. I'm like, well, he's the first one to do that. He showed everyone that it could be done. People might get the story a little mixed up and be like, well, he's the first one who did it. Everyone followed his examples. Like, well, actually, he got really lucky. 
hated the name <laughs> and <laughs> was running away at the time yeah but you know, but, but his I friends think, but it was still the name will still stick i think with that legacy yeah, yeah that other stuff think is about some of these other old figures and their names be like was brand the builder really a builder or did he destroy everything he touched and you're like, you're brand the builder. <laughs> oh it's a it's just a it's an error in pronunciation it was brand the balder <laughs> he was the baldest <laughs> He shaved all. all he yeah. shaved every bit of hair from all over his body. Not, not even an arm. <laughs> not even an armpit hair. <laughs> then along comes Bran the Baldest. Another generation later, <laughs> it was a big bloody war, a real hairy affair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from the Free Folk episode, Alexander Montenegro says, "If winter fell at the castle." or area we deem it at, it makes more sense that the Free Folk ancestors settled beyond the wall after humanity's victory. Because if there was no wall, they couldn't have settled on the other side of it. I, I could kind of see where you're coming from there. Also, with, this, with the amount of time passed, when was the wall built right after the others were defeated? Or maybe 10, 20 years? There's a lot of wiggle room there. But I do see what you're getting at here, Alexander. It makes some sense to consider, well... Maybe there's a time where they lived like on Brandon's gift. They were just in that general area. And then when the decision to make the wall happened, there were people like, we don't want to live on the side of it. And they decided to take the other side or they were kicked out. It's an interesting, it's, it's stokes a lot of possibilities and imagination on how the, how that split may have occurred. When was there a division between the people who became the free folk? Cause they wouldn't have been called that then they would have just been other northerners, I suppose, or maybe some other tribe or a collection of tribes like the free folk they are now. They're very diverse people. So they were just folk. They were just the folk, just the folk. <laughs> the, they were the, un, they were the not free folk. <laughs> they were the trapped <laughs> folk, the prison folk. So what do you think about that, Sean? Yeah. The, the idea that, uh, Alexander, I think is posing, that you know humanity coming out of the long night was just struggling to survive and so i i don't know if they're just struggling to survive how they build the wall uh, there's almost no way to ignore some amount of magic being involved mm. or an extended period of time and with an extended, extended period of time i can easily see how people might have spread out to that land yeah uh, that's why suggesting the time the, the time come thing. up between them yeah but, like if they start building the wall yeah. after things recover when they're on better financial footing you know when they have food again like okay now we can build a wall that, yeah, that could make sense. Another thing, too, is that there might have been a certain amount of infrastructure. It might have been easy to resettle that land when the night passes, mm. if the homes are still there, right? It's freezing and crops don't grow, but the roads, the tools, the houses all still exist. So mm. when it, when it's summer again, if you will, it's easier to go back home. And, and if your home was beyond the wall, you might want to go back there, whether or not they're building the wall. And you can also imagine people literally not believing the walls being built or understanding the the massiveness of it, the meaning of it being built. Um, I, th I think even George didn't realize the meaning of the massiveness of the <laughs> height he gave the wall. <laughs> cool. Um, comment from another one from Brendan Towngate. Some great takes today. Um, a really good book to check out about cultural differences leading to evolutionary differences is why Some Like It Hot. What a great title. The book goes into depth into the subject, including lactose intolerance, as well as taste for spice, perhaps coming from people using spices as preservatives closer to the equator, where therefore favoring people who could eat spicy food without difficulty. And that's a great rabbit hole to dive in. Without going too deep, I want to thank you for the comment and also suggest 
that is a really important difference. Like weather, like as you get closer to the equator, food preservation is a bigger challenge. You know, in colder climates, it's a little easier. Just there's less rot. Less, I mean, it happens. There is rot. There are bugs and mites and bacteria. But obviously, there are just lots more of them in warm, humid climates. And if you use spicy foods to help preserve foods, and that's something that gets maintained in food, of course, you're going to have been eating that since you were a baby. Your ancestors have been eating it forever. And there should be some genetic, um, if not evolutionary, profile within your dna that would reflect that uh i'm, I'm choosing my words carefully because i don't know how much of it is genetics yeah, how much adaptive versus adapt- yeah. evolutionary yeah i'm trying to choose my uh, words carefully maybe i'm not succeeding but that's where i'm getting at so how would you respond to that sean that's pretty interesting huh it 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 reminds me of a um I, i've brought this up before in the past that there was this guy who had was working on this theory that there might be something genetic in us that makes some people more likely to be adventurous and some less likely that that, and that you kind of need both. Like for example, with the Neanderthals who seem to die out because they didn't migrate very well, you can see if they, uh, the idea is like some people like are germaphobic and they just want to stay home and they don't want to be exposed to danger. They're comfortable with stability where other people want to jump out of airplanes and, you know, goes, you know, yeah. climb mountains and stuff. And if you have, if everyone in society is only one or the other, it will kill ourselves off by being too risky and dangerous yeah. or we'll, or we'll end up dying because we don't know how to deal with the drought or, a, mm. you know, climate change. But if you have some people in the population who are adventurers and they go out and find new water sources, new crops, new herds, new islands, you know, that's the one that really can, blows my mind <laughs> when they go out yes. into the sea. Just let's see if there's something out here. Wow. Yeah. So those trailblazers give a, 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 a community or a people or whatever, you know, the ability to find new resources and to migrate to new areas. But the people who want to be stable or aren't worried about danger keep us from all being too risky and killing ourselves, you know, by freezing to death in a mountain that we weren't prepared to climb for. You, you can't have everyone be risk takers or everyone be risk averse. And so his idea is that there must be something genetic that gives us the diversity mm. that allows us to balance. That makes know? sense rather than it's just beha- just straight up random behavior. You know, there must be something that like is fueling that energy, that vibe, that, that goal, the goal seeking or whatever. Yeah. Whatever things people like there's, there's other reasons behind, behind it. Our brains are weird. <laughs> From the Krennic men in the neck episode, Joe little says before they were house high tower, they were Kings of the high tower before there was a house Tarth, They were Kings of Tarth. Kranigmen are called frog eaters, and the sigil of House Marsh is a bunch of frogs. House Marsh could have were the frog king, or were the Marsh kings. The frogs of the frog kings. <laughs> the frog kings. Uh, so it's a possibility, Joe. And we can't be sure that House Marsh were the Marsh kings. It does make sense. One thing, the sigil doesn't come from George. The sigil for House Marsh is from Ilio and Linda. It's probably accurate. Most of the unofficial sigils that come from them are accurate. They just haven't come up in the series so they're semi-canon um, they've done a lot of work with sigils and george and, and encouraged him to change a few of them and, and filled out some detail so them being the source makes it pretty likely it's accurate but there is a chance it's not george may decide no actually the marsh sigil is this um probably never will probably won't ever bother to clarify it the the reason i hesitate here is we're told the last marsh king was killed by rickard so th- 
and we have Bo and Marsh walking around. So the, clearly the marshes weren't extinct, but it's not, it's a little awkward to have a house that's killed as the, as the King house. And then they're still around. Usually if a King is killed, they wipe out all the members of that dynasty so that there's no claims, but we still have house Marsh walking around now. Did Rickard really just leave the marshes alive after killing the King? It's not usually how it's done. So it's a good idea, but there is a possible hole in the theory. Not usually, but I could easily see how it would be done, especially when we talk about the nature of the Starks being maybe, what's the word, more reconciliatory, more concerned about their people. Like maybe that one Marsh King was, uh, you know, in opposition Mm. to the Starks. But maybe the Marshes as a whole were like, this King sucks. We're happy to join with you. And so he kills that one off. And oh, the rest yeah. Get married. Maybe and, they you know, helped overthrow so. their own king. Yeah, that's, that's the histories yeah, don't say that, but it doesn't. It's not precluded by the histories not saying that. It's like we get like two sentences, so of course there's room for more. That's a yeah. good point. I like that. Farrell seventy five says, "I always found it weird how George put the neck, a subtropical zone, in between the north, which is like Scandinavia, Alaska, and the Riverlands, which is like Germany slash Virginia." And Farrell seventy five says they live six miles from a real Kranig. Nice. That's really cool. So, you know, I live six miles from an imaginary crane. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, by the way, is, is the neck a subtropical? Like in my mind, I think of it as like Arkansas or South Carolina, you know, it's swampy, but it's not super warm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, it probably gets warm sometimes a year. Like it gets warm in the north sometimes, but it, it's not subtropical. It's not super warm. Yeah. It's, it is a colder swamp. It's more of a, Maybe it's a bog. Uh, we talked about the differences before, and I've forgotten a lot of them. But yeah, it is. I, I double checked. Has the more to do with like water levels than temperature. Yeah, right? it does. I wish I knew a little better. But jungles, maybe. I bet jungles are also have to do with rainfall. But anyway, I like South Carolina is hot and muggy and swampy, and also freezing cold in the winter. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, but one thing I did learn digging a little deeper. I did check on this. I went back and read Theon's chapter at Mokalen. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty cold. During that chapter, of course, it's winter's coming, so maybe in a different time. But it, when summer is raging, it might be a little bit warm there. So, yeah, it might be one of those places that's warm in summer and cold when it's not. But there's no – but they were burning fires. They were they were, def, it's, they were definitely cold. There were peat fires in the different places in the towers that Theon goes. So they were definitely cold. Um, so uh, – but lots of mold even there. That's another thing to keep in mind. It's the, When there's lots of flooding – that's one of the big problems that comes after a flood is all the additional mold. Like, for example, we talked about Hurricane Katrina at one time, and that was one of the biggest problems after Katrina in, in New Orleans and, and some of the other cities around was the mold. All these places that weren't supposed to have water, got water all over them, and mold just was like a 40 to 50% uptick in mold. It, was, it had a huge impact on, like, children. and Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have even thought of this if we hadn't talked earlier about the idea of making corrections. Someone pointed out in one of the, I think in the comments on one of the YouTube videos, that uh, a lot of the damage to New Orleans and Katrina wasn't actually the flood itself. It was the dam. Uh, I think maybe even Yeah, I looked specific, that up. Uh, I don't think they were right about that. That's why this. Yeah, com- I don't know why that comment's not in here. Details, but I, <laughs> I looked it okay. up. Yeah, no, they were they were wrong. There was like a thousand people died in New or- in New Orleans proper, and only eleven hundred people died in Louisiana during. So like, 
Well, not so much about the number of people that died, but a lot of the damage came from no, I, failings of the dams no. and the waterways and such, mm. more so than the storm itself. No, but. I don't think that's true. I looked it up. I looked it up. I did not. My my own okay. research did not verify that. It, was, it said the opposite. So, um, in any case, it's not super important. It was devastating. Lots of people died. That's the bottom yeah, line. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's awful. Michael Priestley says, all this swamp talk and no mention of the Nile Delta swamps can spawn an empire to last the ages. That's a good point. We, we did refer to, say, the, the swamps in between the Tigris and Euphrates, which were the cradle of civilization. The Nile is another good example. And we also gave the caveat there's too many swamps and types of swamps to talk about them all. So, yes, good call, Michael Priestley. That is a very true. The Nile Delta is extremely fertile. Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome, and it was the breadbasket for itself before it was conquered from the outside. It's very fertile, at least along the rivers. And if you go in the I think desert, I did bring that up so. in the uh, in the Sarnor episode. Oh, did you? I think I okay, might have pointed that out. We, yeah. we compared. We also compared the Nile to the Rhine in our Mother Rhine episode because it's uh, an ancient, super ancient, brown-skinned civilization um, that accomplished a lot, and so did the Rhoynar. All those things are true. Of the Rhoynar too, that were based around a huge ancient river. Um, Fran Balcal says, I always picture gray water watch to be like the floating islands of Uros in Peru. They are man-made from weaving a type of reed, uh-huh, reed and float around the shores of Lake Titicaca, which are quite swampy. Uh, personally, I find it anything to do with Lake Titicaca hard to take seriously, but I will set aside 13 year old disease for now. <laughs> well, you said that with a very straight face though. You're right. I practiced <laughs> last night. I was giggling a lot as I put this comment in the document, like he, he, he thinking about beavis you know titicaca and <laughs> here's a quote from atlasobscura.com about the euros people it's awesome the euros people have been living on the lake for hundreds of years they were forced to take up residence on the floating islands when the incas expanded onto their land in the shadow of the andes on the world's highest navigable lake they make their living from fishing and from selling their reed handicrafts to tourists. The Euros use the Tutora reed, which is plentiful along the edges of the lake, to make their homes, their furniture, their boats, and the isles and the islands they live on. Their boats, which are shaped like canoes but with animal heads at the prow, are used for fishing and to bring visitors out to the islands which are usually moored to the bottom of the lake, but can be moved if necessary. As reeds, As reeds disintegrate from the bottom of the islands, which are four to eight feet thick, residents must add more to the surface, which is soft and occasionally spongy. Each island has a collection of simple reed houses, and the biggest island has a watchtower, Originally, the mobility of the islands was used as a defense mechanism. Even tiny outhouse islands have been created, and the ground roots of the outhouse islands help absorb the waste. But despite the traditional lifestyle, the Uros people are not against modern, an- against modern amenities. Some families have motorboats or solar panels, and the main island is home to a radio station that plays music for several hours each day. That is so awesome. I mean, it really gives you a better idea of maybe how the Kranigmen could live or could have lived and how people on the Silver Sea may have lived or other places. 
That is super cool. There's up to 10 families can live on one of these reed islands. 10 families can live on one of these reed islands. 10. That's so many people yeah, on a the, reed island. Yeah, do they have a, a watchtower? Like, it adds to my idea that the Greywater watch. watch is is on a similar sort of island that can move up and down rivers. It's even called Watch. <laughs> Greywater Watch. Yeah. The watchtower. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. There's still about 1,200 or so euros active on the lake now. They have cats, domesticated birds. The birds, they even, te- they, they have the birds fish for them. They'll like take a, a cormorant and ta- uh, hold its feet, set it by the, the edge, and then it just like grabs fish out of the water and they're like, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> and then, you know, it gets some too, obviously. But these reeds are also extremely good for filtration it's been used as a natural filter in other places, just without people living on them. Um, it absorbs phosphorus. And of course, as it says there, the, the, the outhouse islands, which is a really funny idea, but hey, it makes sense to keep that separate. The, the reeds absorb a lot of that filth as well. So it's just a really good, like, complete biosystem there. But here's an. It's amazing to me that humans have this sort of ingenuity to right? do this, all the different ways that we figure out to live. It know? says necessity is the mother of invention, right? We hear about that. Like Venice was founded by people fleeing into the islands in that lagoon. And here they fled. They were fleeing the Incas. They were trying to get away. And like, well, they yeah. can't get us out here on the lake. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> true. They're still there. The Incas are long gone. <laughs> but, <laughs> but these folk are still the there. The Spanish couldn't get them either, yeah, I guess. It's yeah. true. <laughs> so floating islands can and do form naturally uh, quite often as well this got me into another smaller rabbit hole it's usually called a tussock a float on or a sud a float on they were really uh uncreative the day. <laughs> they created the float on so roots what happens is you have roots plants growing at the edge of uh, a shore right they're growing out over the water from land and then they get but eventually get far enough out that the roots can't reach the bottom anymore but they start absorbing oxygen anyway, and they become buoyant. And then the more that happens, eventually it gets bigger and bigger and breaks off from land and then floats away. Kind of makes me think of Life of Pi. Do you remember that, Sean? I don't know if you ever saw oh, that. Oh, Life I do. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, you remember mm. they have like the fake island or whatever? Um, yeah, anyways. yeah. That also re- is relevant to the next point here, which is that pumice rafts are a thing. What? <laughs> yes, pumice rafts. Pumice rafts, it's, it's volcanic expulsion that hardens and floats. It's possibly the origin of life on Earth. <laughs> they, there's one, they get really big. Sometimes they're just like a few hundred feet wide, just like a floating piece of pumice that just sits there until it sinks because they, they gradually become waterlogged and sink, but it can take months. In 2012, there was one twice the size of New Zealand. Whoa. Twice Holy the crap. size of New Zealand, a pumice raft. It sank after three months. And the only reason people, the, the, the raft is why scientists figured out that an eruption even happened in the first place. That was the pumice raft. It was like, oh, there must have been an eruption. And they discovered the eruption down in the Kermadec Islands and down there. Mm. Uh, once in 2006, I think it was, one floated over f- to Fiji from Tonga, 30 miles wide. Or 30 kilometers wide. Well, it just floated by like, oh, look at that. A new temporary island. In 2006, one, a ship just sailed into one of these. It was like, boop. Didn't damage it. or didn't get, didn't sink or anything. But they were like, there's not supposed to be an island here. That's not on the map. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> not on the map. This thing is huge. What the hell? And then, of course, it was gone, you know, a couple months later. So, thing today I, mean, I learned. 
I'm reminded of when we were talking about volcanoes, how sometimes uh, I've forgotten the word for it now, but the, 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 uh, sometimes the eruption melts ice, the heat of the volcano, and that creates a mudslide. Yeah. And a mudslide just pushes the top layer of everything in the land into the sea. Mm. So all the trees, all the debris, the dirt, everything, and, but there's enough mixed material in there that it floats and it makes a sort of a raft out in the ocean. A whole new island. Of debris just washed off the Whoa. top layer of soil after a volcanic eruption. And one of them was like, miles like you know five by five miles it it, it, it floated like a thousand miles away of i'm pretty sure it was somewhere in the, the philippines or the wow malaysia an, an eruption had happened that created an, an island that a raft of, of earth debris that just like floated out into the sea probably stuff like that happened during the doom of valyria there are probably some new little islands created probably some internal that aren't able to people aren't able to get to because they're still kind of in the midst of all that <laughs> but yeah there probably were they would have been pumice rafts and all these other things probably too pretty cool speaking of valyria feral 75 says is there a gathering a word for gathering of dragons you know a murder of crows uh, well, we had uh we, or we came up with a bunch of those i think oh is this a yeah. re- am i repeating this one well I think you are i don't know if we did Darn. these exact ones but we did a few okay we did we were also we're like a dance of dragons well then i need to correct and, myself yeah. here on this episode of corrections i am repeating something <laughs> <laughs> a do-over of dragons haha <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had like yeah, destruction of dragons. Destruction, we had, we, yeah. We, we, people came up with a lot of good that ones. one. I remember. Yeah, That's that a really good devastation. Of devastation of dragons. Yeah. Okay. Cool. A darkness of dragons is one you're about to mention a here, but think about how the skies get covered yeah. with the shadows of their wings. Okay. Well, okay. well, that question was good enough that I wanted to do it twice. That's 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 <laughs> my official line here. <laughs> <laughs> so the Valyrian Wars, a couple comments about that. Cranig Woman says, Latin is the root to French, but there is still a Celtic language in Brittany that is very much alive, although declining. Yeah, I looked that up. This would be the Britonic slash Brythonic languages that uh, are the source of Welsh, Breton, Cornish, Cumbric, and possibly Pictish. And I think all those, yeah, all those languages are dying. Welsh is dying. Breton is dying. Cornish, I think is the least dead of those cumbric i think is the most dead maybe welsh is not, it's not important but those are fascinating the, the the history of language is very interesting and of course that's a big part of the second half of this episode talking about david j peterson and some things we learned there part of why i was interested in this comment in particular but it, of course at the time we were talking about uh, high valyrian and um other things related to that and how latin is still out there but no one really speaks it right it's still hugely important as a written language especially for historical stuff but as far as people conversing in Latin, unless you're in church, doesn't happen too much. You got to be a real nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <person lying>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, one thing I meant to mention that didn't was a, during the Valyrian episode was the comparison to the we, we, we briefly discussed the comparison of dragon roads to the Roman roads. But there's a few things that are interesting to add on to that. One is that the whole concept of all roads lead to Rome and allowed their armies to move a lot faster, things like that. It's interesting for Valyria because Valyria didn't need their armies to move faster as much as it was still very helpful. It's still a good thing for them, but having, they might want their commerce to move faster. That's what I was going to say. You, they definitely want that. Yeah. They're big on money. They're definitely big on gathering the loot. So you, you want to be able to get it in and out quickly. And, and I would, I imagine all roads led to Valyria too. I mean, it was the center of, of their power. I imagine there weren't many like, and I actually just go over that way. You know, no, all roads lead to Valyria. But uh, also, Sean, we were talking about, remember how we take things for granted and how certain, like, 
old school recipes or ingredients or methods of doing things that get lost over time. Like maybe some things they learned during the time of Stonehenge, like how the heck did they move those rocks or how did they build the pyramids? Yeah. Things like that. People are still trying to figure out or certain farming techniques that have been lost. Like Carthage was extremely fertile. They had farming techniques that have been lost. Like they don't know how they did that. Some of the reason it was lost is because no one thought to write it down because they thought it was just so well known. It's like, well, it's like, why would we write down? Um, I'm, it's so hard to come up with a, the most basic example. Like, why would we write down like Christmas? You know, everybody knows about Christmas, yeah, right? How to use the steering wheel of a car. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's too easy. How to use a coffee. Ma- I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a parallel example, but something What's that's so on basic. The phone to dial out, like to hit call after you type yeah. the number in. Okay. That's like a good that. one. Yeah. That's a good one. Know. That's a very good one. That's a, that's a better example than, than mine. Um, so Roman concrete. Roman concrete is a great example of this because Roman concrete is really ahead of its time or was ahead of its time. And the ingredients were pretty simple, but no one could make it work. Modern people were like, what's the deal? It's like this, this, water, this, this. And like, we keep putting water. It doesn't work. The difference was it was seawater, not freshwater. They were using freshwater. Mm-hmm. The Romans, were like, of course you use seawater for concrete. For them, they, they didn't <laughs> bother to clarify seawater versus freshwater because like, of course you use seawater. Well, it's way more plentiful. It's hard to get lots of fresh water. Yeah, of course, you use seawater. Once they did that, it's, and it works better. Yeah, and it works better. Yeah, that's <laughs> the, the biggest reason. But but modern people had, didn't figure that out right away. So you just wanted to bring that up again because we definitely talked about this topic. In we the, did the concrete thing. We definitely talked about salt water and, and that and <laughs> two an in a row. <laughs> like uh, it's a fun enough topic. I think it's worth bringing up again because it really is one of those things where you're like, oh, of course, yeah, <laughs> man. All right, well. I guess we should do these more often then so yeah, I don't like, yeah, forget maybe, which maybe, ones we've already done. Maybe we, maybe we should call them highlight episodes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Some things may get repeated. Now, there were, now, one thing I'm positive we didn't talk about was a lot of other examples that y'all sent in for real-world fallen empire, things that collapsed quickly. Not just stuff like Atlantis, which is mythical, but still relevant because it's part of our culture. It's people did believe it was real, and that affects history. But also other examples that I don't have in front of me. I, I'm not going to talk about them now. I wanted to save that for some other time because it's a really cool topic and we've got good opportunities to bring it up with more uh, direct A Song of Ice and Fire influence. So we'll save that for later. Ancient Dorn. Uh, Uvo Zod says, I've been thinking recently that the breaking of the Armadorn had nothing to do with stopping humans from crossing and actually meant to stop the spread of shade trees into Westeros. The shade trees are the, the, the sort of opposite weirwood. They're not necessarily opposite weirwood, but they can be described that way in Karth. The the ones where they make like the shade inverted. that you can from. What's that? They're like inverted versions. Yeah, they're kind of inverted. Blue, they're like black like blue and, and blue. Black instead of red and white. Yeah. And they have this magical aspect to them. Like, so I mean, that- it literally is like if you were to take a photo of a werewood and in Photoshop hit invert, you have a shade of the evening tree, <laughs> to be clear. So um, that I'm not sure I agree with this theory specifically, but I love the idea that it wasn't just people they're trying to stop, that there was like crops, not crops, but some sort of plant life that they would that they didn't want. Like, they don't want this pollen coming from these trees. It could be something like this. See, this the reason I'm not sure about shade trees is shade trees are, Karth is so far from the broken arm of Dorne. So, like, you're saying, like, America should have gotten rid of Georgia to get rid of kudzu kind of thing? Or? Yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, Bugs Bunny sawing oh. Florida off just, <laughs> like, you know, like that kind of thing. If you consider a sort of ma- magical element... So, like, you know, maybe, I don't know if, how connected the roots are underground or someone could have, like, 
the way the children of the forest or brand seem to be able to see through the trees? What if some corrupt individual was seen through weirwood trees and in doing so corrupting the trees? Mm. And they wanted to like, what, what if shape, uh, 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 shade trees used to be weirwood trees? Mm, I've heard that theory before. It's a cool idea. Yeah. Converted, mm. you know, and that, 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 this was an attempt to stop that spread that the, they were trying to cut off the root system. Because it was a disease that was spreading like through. Yeah, I could see that. That's a really cool idea because, I mean, think of it this way. The, um, that's, that's where their focus is, especially before people even existed. They cared about, you know, like natural growth and, and naturalistic things and being close to life cycles and biology as they know it. And if there's a, uh, like a attitude towards save the whole, yeah, you would do anything to, to preserve that shred of life because it could regrow you know all you need to do is all you need is one sprig to regrow regrow a whole forest if you have this long-term view and and if you think of the valyrian prophecy the valyrian prophecy was that the doom of valyria or the doom of their people i don't have the wording in front of me was in casterly rock so there's some sort of prophecy that tells them that there's something off the doom the casterly rock gold is like that's the reason they stay away from westeros there could be some prophecy some magical thing that the children of the forest were uh, privy to well in advance. I mean, we've got prophecies already are sort of out of time. They don't, they don't obey the rules of time. So they could see something that happens way far in the future and be like, well, our magic will be too weak. 10,000 years from now, this is our only chance to do something like this. You know, we, we can only do this now. That's something I don't have in my brain, by the way, is there some prophecy that Valeria had that in had to do with Casterly Rock. Yeah. I know you said you didn't have it in front of you, but I, I wasn't aware of this well, at all. Well, so. Let's talk about that one later. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's, yeah. there's a little, little bit there. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get to that. Um, on the Dawn Age, Frank Lucas says, with regards to the victor writing history and demonizing the conquered, Caesar's description of the Gauls was kind of fascinating. Perhaps he was just trying to increase the appeal of the Gallic slave for Romans, as in like marketing purposes. Like these will, they'll make great slaves, or he's just trying to make himself seem stronger for beating them. That's a great take because on one hand, it's sort of straightforward, but it's easy to forget. When we think about history is written by the winners, you kind of just assume they're making themselves sound better and everybody else sound worse. But people, we can be really subtle in the ways you can make yourself sound better. It's like, oh, that guy was really tough, but I beat him. You know, like, mm, no, no. You, you mean that puppy? <laughs> the two-pound <laughs> puppy that you defeated? Is that what makes you feel strong? So... Not that the Gauls are puppies. I'm just saying it's anyone can write whatever they want. <laughs> so we have to keep in mind that sometimes they don't just denigrate. They uh, exaggerate in order to for their own purposes or whatever the purpose might be. And that's another aspect of cynicism. There is like, yeah, he's just trying to make the slaves sound more valuable. It's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Ugh, that's, that's like another thing, like ancient world mindset, things we would never would even occur because we don't think of people as merchandise, right? It's really hard yeah. to put yourself <laughs> in that mindset. And I don't really want to. I don't really want to like linger on that thought too much. I mean, we've got to acknowledge that it's a real part of history, not just, you know, and a song of ice and fire history. But whoa, yeah, <laughs> don't linger on that thought too long. Mm -hmm. um, anything to add to that, Sean? Pretty good take, huh? No, yeah, I, I, I'm aware of this idea of how the Romans in general, maybe Caesar specifically, were casting the the Gauls and you know uh, 
the rest of Europe as these savages and it sort of justified going out and attacking them. But but for Caesar to say, but these savages, they were actually pretty advanced. Yeah. <laughs> seem even, you know, not, not only is he justified for attacking them because they're savages, but he's extra worthy for defeating them because they were above average savages. Above average savage. Savage. <laughs> savage. Ooh, average that's savage. hard to say. Above average savage. That's really hard to say. That's our new tongue twister. We've retired Irish wristwatch. You now must say above average savage. <laughs> I can't. Do, okay, it wins because I can't do savage. it. That proves it. I can do it. Okay. Shay can do it. Okay. Because I'm an above average, average savage. Average That's average why Irish is these. Wrist, wrist watch it's because savage. I'm an above average savage. <laughs> and I'm, That's what I'm, I'm a below you average can't. savage. <laughs> You're uh, just savage. Sa- I'm just savage. I'm yeah. an above. You're below. I'm an above average elitist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have to say it. <laughs> Thomas Smithson says, would be awesome if Tommen loves the book and Yandel gets raised up a little because of the World of Ice and Fire book, only for it to come back and bite him on the butt when Aegon takes King's Landing and he gets condemned for supporting the usurper, or maybe Yandel doesn't get to present his book to Tommen and gives it to Aegon, and now Tommen's name is crossed out. <laughs> it says Fagon. <laughs> it's like, no, don't say Fagon. <laughs> Young Griff, you know, son of Illyria. Wait, hold on. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> No, I thought history is written by the winners. I, my name is Aegon. <laughs> my dad is Rhaegar. again. <laughs> I insist. Yes, that is a good one. I like that, Thomas. Uh, from the Children of the Forest episode, Alhad Pareshtakar says, the year is measured according to suns or moons position. Seasons are not used for counting years. Okay, that's a good clarification. Yeah, you sun, position the sun or moon in the sky is how you judge the time of year more so than what season it is which is how you do it in westwards now we can kind of do both because the seasons do somewhat correspond that is changing but it would be more important to measure by sun and moon in westeros when the seasons are really inconsistent it occurs to me that we still track the years if you will of mars and jupiter but their seasons are completely different it has to do with their position around the sun so yeah that makes sense good clarification there alhad Mother says, "What do we know about the children of the forest? What we know about the children of the forest is ba- really based on post-human invasion. So we don't know what their original distribution was. Just that after the pact, the children took the woods and remote areas, while the humans took coasts and plains and all that stuff. That's a great point. Uh, maybe we referred to that. I don't know. But the idea being that they're called the children of the forest, but before humans came, they were just the children of everywhere, all over. <laughs> and maybe they loved the beaches and other stuff too, like." Who knows? But it's a good point that maybe it, it was different. For a split second, I thought you misspoke, Aziz. I thought you meant to say after the fact. I was like, no, he after the pact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Like, we don't know. Maybe they, they were more widespread. Um, I mean, and I, I mean, when we talked about um, Sarnor, we were talking a bit about the idea that oh, the Nothi have you know have a connection to the children of the forest in which case that would be our like island our children of the island you know kind of oh, thing oh yeah children um, of the like butterflies yeah some, like tropical okay. versions of them that live along the coasts versus versus the forest and just to be clear folks one of the reasons why that comparison is made is the nathi have golden eyes yeah like, they're like the children not brown eyes, skin so. and like golden eye you know like they have brown skin and golden eyes yeah. but the golden eyes is obviously the far more uh that's the one that's like thing. whoa hold yeah. on there <laughs> And they're or small. It's, it's well. the more unique. Yeah, yeah. It's the rarer trait. Again, eyeballs always stand out, folks. <laughs> um, Guinevere Greenstone says, what do we know about the children of the forest contributed to the ending of the first long night? 
Well, there's a lot we don't know, but the basics are they taught humanity about obsidian and the value of obsidian in fighting. And they may have uh, taught them other things. If they taught them that, there's an implication that they taught them more than that. But that was the main thing. We don't know if they fought side by side with humans. I think that's not unlikely. Or maybe they fought their front of war was elsewhere. They were helping fight the others, but not literally side by side. Um, maybe behind the scenes, maybe the humanity didn't trust them. Some did, some didn't. I'm not, that's, that's difficult. But I think the main focus is on armaments. I think that was the main thing they did was provide knowledge of their weakness and how to exploit it. And maybe some other just how they work. Like, well, yeah, they can... They're vulnerable to fire or sun or maybe other stuff like that was brought up as well. I don't know that they did a whole lot of straight up fighting, but they probably did. I think they probably did some because we see it like at Blood Raven's Cave. I mean, the show made it a lot more like visible, but Leaf was throwing fire in the book too at the Whites. Um, they weren't like big fire grenades, Another- but she was like lighting them on fire and, and running around and was really quick and it was effective. So they, they, they sh- it proves that it can happen. It proves the children can fight them. And then they gave us a little glimpse as to what they might do. We haven't seen the children fight an other, but, you know, we can assume they are capable. A, uh, a way to describe that way they were helping would be intelligence, like just yeah. knowledge of how tools would to use against them. And they might have also helped an, another form of intelligence might have been just like, uh, if they can see through the weirwood trees, you know, just battlefield knowledge, like they're moving armies in this territory and the humans getting a hundred soldiers in the right pass at the right moment is more valuable than a thousand soldiers in the wrong place. And so, and that's also something that might've been difficult to give them credit for, but would have made a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And I think that, I think mostly it would be the information nor I think about it because I think if they were capable of fighting them, exploiting those weaknesses themselves, they probably would have. They yeah. needed humans to do it. Humans couldn't, like the children couldn't do it on their own. So whatever, if, if we're going by the theory that they created the others in the first place as a weapon that they got out of hand, then yeah, it truly did get out of hand for them. They couldn't stop it either. But they at least knew like where the off switch was. They just couldn't access it We themselves. could get it out of hand. We could handle this if we had 10,000 more people. Yeah, or we're we too had, depopulated you know, or what have you. Yeah. Which is why they maybe created the others in the first place because they were so desperate. So that it all, it all fits. It all works together as an idea, certainly. Um, more on the Long Night. Maester Warlam from Discord says, I'm fully on board with the idea that the Long Night has magical and not astrophysical origins, but I'm an astronomer studying exoplanets, so here are some ways you could get a Long Night on Planetos. Volcanic eruption or impact from an asteroid or comet chokes the air with dust and blocks light, which has already been discussed. Yep, so that one's, that one's viable. Planetos becomes tidally locked with its star, so one side of the planet is in perpetual darkness and the other is in perpetual day. If the long night happened at the same time in both Westeros and Essos, then Planetos would have to be twice as large than the current maps. If the long night happened at slightly different times in both places, Planetos could be almost tidally locked and produce the same effect of years-long night that slowly creeps from one part of the world to other. The only problem is that you can't really become untidally locked because it's a minimum energy state. That's interesting. That also somewhat above my head. <laughs> the months-long nights and days seen at the poles on Earth is due to our 23.5 degree axial tilt. Uranus's 98 degree axial tilt means that pretty much every part of the planet is going to spend a significant part of its orbit in perpetual night. 
If Planetos had an extreme tilt that was also changing to the South Pole, oh, so the South Pole was always facing the sun, the Northern Hemisphere could have experienced a years-long night. The problem here is that axial tilts can only change this dramatically over millions of years unless the planet gets hit with another planet-sized object, which is what caused Uranus to tip over on its side. That must have really hurt when Uranus was hit by a big planet. <laughs> but again wait, another I thing really we can't love, not joke about like yeah. like Titicaca, Uranus impossible <laughs> anyway, sorry go ahead Sean I really love this analysis by the way this these are the types of things that I was pondering before but he's got more specific knowledge to describe it yeah Actual and I don't mean here. to question him uh, <laughs> but I still think some of these things he's saying there are ways it could happen like once you get in that title lock that naturally it would just stay that way but you, it might be affected by some other celestial body. Mm-hmm. That the what third, if some other comet yeah. came by, or what if there used to be two moons, or something, some and the, something. And maybe, the two moon theory is part of legend in the planet already. Yeah. And there's even this idea, isn't there? Talk about like dragons coming out mm-hmm. of the moon. Maybe something did hit, and those things could have an effect on the axis tilt or the the pull of the moon around on the tide of the ocean. Things yeah. like that can make little shifts, and those little shifts might be enough over a generation to change the seasons or the amount of light hitting one side of the hemisphere or the other. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, another point there is this where you can just add a little bit of magic to fill in the gaps of what makes science possible. And rather than just yeah. have this be an entirely, utterly magical event, have it be a mix of magic nudging the science, filling in the gaps like this says. The problem here is that axial tilts can only change this dramatic every millions of years. Well, maybe that's where magic comes in. Magic speeds that process up. Yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where I can fill in the blanks with magic because I don't know the science. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, regarding, I hope that uh, Master Warland, Master Warland, watching this, and yeah, and let us know if these things were supposing. Oh, I guess that could work. Yeah. No, nope, there's no way. Yeah, I'd cool. be interested in some extra feedback. I would love to come back to the science of the long night sometime. We we met somebody at Worldcon that that all, had some similar ideas, and I, I thought about having them on as a guest, or maybe Master Warland. We'll see. We'll see. Something for the future. Uh, the Pact Gaming with this guy says, "It is. Is it considered a loss when the other side decides to take your people as their gods?" The children of the forest lost a lot of lands, but they made an entire new race worship them or their gods. Kind of interesting. You know, that's a really good point because it's a very human perspective that they they lost because there's fewer of them. And, that, you know, we beat them in war. We <laughs> humans beat them in war. <laughs> but, like, going back to the idea of the Ender's Game, the story, um, the piggies and their tree race and how they thought being sacrificed was like the best thing you can do for someone. There's an Inca, there's a, there's a famous story from um, a Mexica tribe that visited um, another Mexica tribe and, and one of them, there was a royalty meeting and one of them said, hey, let me see your daughter for a minute. And they're like, okay, the king's like, okay, go take my daughter. And I don't know what, the, what was supposed to, what he thought was going to happen. But what, act, what, what did happen was a priest comes back having flayed her and was wearing her skin. And he's like, this was supposed to like honor her and honor them. And they were like, we're honoring. This is the highest honor we can give. And we're just like, if you're like a normal person here, we're like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's an honor. Like they're perplexed. Like, no, we were honoring you. This is a good thing. You're like, you kidding me. You s- killed my daughter and t- what the hell? So maybe that was more important to them. Maybe in the long run, the children were like, yeah, it's more important that billions of people worship these gods of ours than that that we are the ones worshiping them it's more important that that you know just who knows what they value i don't i mean i it's maybe hard to assume that they were happy they're not happy about having so many of them killed and all that but what what's a win for them what would a win have looked like for them like if you if you get into that question you're like i don't know 
driving all the hum- driving humanity out of Westeros? Is that what they wanted? We don't actually know that. <laughs> That's just a theory. We don't yeah. actually know they wanted that. I mean, you can it's a it's a fairly safe guess. It's a strong guess. I don't think you could discard it. But we have to we have to consider that maybe that's not what they wanted, or maybe only some of them. Because, again, that also gets back to the whole, well, they're not a monolith. They don't all want the same thing. Well, maybe they do. Yeah. But <laughs> they probably don't. <laughs> Odds are they Odds don't, are. yeah. So it's a real big ball of wax. What would you say to this, Sean? Any any comment here? Yeah, it is interesting to think about in general what, what like, even aside from some, you know, fictional mythological race like Children's Force, what about humans what about the romans what about americans yeah. what is a win for us yeah I, I i think in general increased happiness which which springs from security freedom yeah. prosperity you know but uh i mean but 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 to at least some people some segments of humans or cultures or whatever it might be more important that everyone worship God and go to heaven or whatever mm-hmm. than there be happiness on earth. I mean, that's, a, that's an attitude a lot of like missionaries have, I think. Because like, they're like, I, if I die, well, it's fine. I'm going to go to heaven anyway because I'm in the service of God. That'll be worthwhile. But if I bring these people, you know, into the fold, then it's worth it. It's worth the risk. You know, any, any, all, any yeah. saved soul. I mean, if you truly believe someone's going to hell if they're not saved— and that's pretty motivating, I suppose, if you truly, yeah. sincerely believe that. Like, well, I don't want these people to go burn an eternal fire. Like, that would be pretty motivating if you sincerely believe that. But it leads to a lot of unjustifying the means in ways that... It's true. one thing for ends to justify the means if it means increasing happiness on Earth. Yeah. But ends justifying the means to some mythical afterlife thing? That's, that's pretty dangerous. Trickier, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of unintended consequences and things like that, Kate M says, do you think it's po- possible that Bran might accidentally or indirectly become bad? He's so young and so powerful and has spent his life breaking rules. It seems like a recipe for disaster. I could see him doing horrible things in an attempt to get what he thinks are crucial outcomes. Wouldn't it be ironic if Mel Sunder was actually right in her vision when she saw him as a villain um, next to Bloodraven? Or at least right, partially right might be more, might be more likely, if anything. But yeah. Possibly becomes bad. Maybe has already become bad. I mean, he's, Likely he, will become I don't bad. think he's bad, but I think he's definitely done bad things. Like stealing Hodor's yeah. brain, even temporarily, is that's bad. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. When he did it to save their lives, I, I mean, that's fine. Like, that's doing what you must do to, to Hodor would have died. So, uh, you know, that seems fine. But other than that, but just, take, just mean, taking walks around, like, that's not fine. It's like hero or hate crime we, right here. Yeah. <laughs> we could get into a whole philosophical discussion. <laughs> You could get in a whole philosophical discussion too about like what what bad is or what makes a person bad. Like, yeah, a, a little four year old killing ants. I mean, I think some people maybe think there's no problem with that, but there's a difference between just doing it randomly, not understand what you're doing, yeah. and knowing that it's bad or that you're causing pain and doing it anyway. Yeah, right? yeah. And there's there might also be a difference between doing something quote unquote bad when you're 14 and immature or naive and in realizing it by the time you're 20 and changing your ways, making amends for it or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Good said. And yeah, I wonder about that too. I think it's a something that George has kept a very strong theme throughout the books, throughout almost all characters, power, the corruption of power and how power just can, you know, when you have the ability to do something, that's amazing or interesting even if it's right or wrong you can't if you can do it it's hard not to do it like that's the thing with Bran and his temptation to be able to walk that's really what he's doing he's not he's obviously 
that's what he wants, right? That's why he's doing it. He's not doing it. He's like, ooh, I want to be Hodor for a while. I like being in this big... Bu-. No, he just wants to walk, right? That's his motive. And we, and we know that because we're in his head, which is the kind of thing you can't have in the, in the real world. You don't know what someone's thinking. But it gives us an interesting perspective on judging, uh, a kind of insight that we don't have in the real world. Palavan says, I see a strong connection between the idea of Melisandre... Uh, being an expert on doors and a potential soundtrack for her character. This one's for you, Shea. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, <laughs> Shea's a big fan of the doors. Yeah. Uh, Love Me Two Times thing. fits Stannis and the Two Shadow Babies. Uh, we could be we could be so good together regarding Davos and her indecent proposal because she was like, I can make another shadow baby with you. And then <laughs> tell all the people f- that song is for her religious leader status, you know, like spreading the word <laughs> of her lore. And then, of course, light my fire. I mean, yeah, yeah that's a slam dunk right there. Um. <laughs> Good comment, Palavan. Oh, I, I like this a lot in general, especially because um, I did a 1970s Melisandre cosplay at Ice and Firecon. So yeah. we had like all these 70s red priestesses. So super fitting. fitting. The doors were I can totally think of other ones. got to do. I can think of other ones. Some kind of Jim Morrison. Some kind of Jim Morrison Stannis mashup. Yes, <laughs> I would love that um, for sure. Although I, I, I give, I get more uh, Jon Snow vibes from Jim Morrison. Um, oh, personally, okay. um, yeah, died young. Anyways, I could go on about that, but no, there's like, I mean, like end of the night would be a good one for oh, Melisandre. Yeah. Five to one, <laughs> Queen of the Highway. I don't know. There's there's a lot. I mean, the there's a lot of good song. Doors songs that have like kind of a good spooky, sexy vibe. The <laughs> end. We'll yeah, never know. Yeah. <laughs> Is that enough to suspect that George did this on purpose? <laughs> on some level, he's influenced. I mean, by George it? likes '60s rock. The Doors are really good. I yeah. mean, he's a Grateful Dead fan. I mean, I mean, that's not because he likes the Grateful Dead doesn't mean he likes the Doors. But you know, he's into mm-hmm. rock music from that era. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's. I'm sure he's familiar with the Doors. Let's put it that way. He may not be a big fan, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's that. Um, his, obviously, he's got his uh, rock opera book that that he wrote that has a lot of uh, clear references to music of the time <laughs> because it's literally about rock music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was a a little bit of a segue point using the Isle of Faces slash Green Men episode to segue to the modern Green Men mashup. Ashea discussing 70s Melisandre, me mentioning the Green Men. This is leading into our comments. I mean, our comments? Our photos. Our con. <laughs> I'm going to say con. Our conments. That's right. Condiments. <laughs> so let's do our little mid-roll real quick, and then we shall get into con photos, con discussion, and David J. Peterson awesome news. So stay tuned for that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Steve Van Prien says, were you able to record anything from Ice and Firecon that you'll be editing and sharing in the future? Well, other than what we're sharing today, for the most part, no. They recorded almost every panel, though. Yes. Ice and, you can go to Ice and Firecon's YouTube, or YouTube channel. channel and see most of them. They That's, will be out. Yeah. That said, a lot of the David J. Peterson stuff wasn't recorded, which is part of why I wanted to share it today, because I know some of it didn't get recorded. There's some technical problems in his main presentation. So I don't think that got recorded at all. Uh, so, because normally I would say, you know, we wouldn't just say all the things that happened there. Be like, well, that's stealing their thunder. Like, you should go to their channel and watch it. But because so many things were not recorded this time. But our panels were, see, for the most part, there weren't many te- technical difficulties for ours. Yeah. Um, so it should be there. There might have been some mic problems. So we'll, it remains to be seen. But there definitely will be a host of, of, of a bunch yeah. of panels. Up. There should be a lot of videos popping up on Ice and Fire Can's channel within the next week or two uh, ish. And we'll keep you all posted on that because some of them in particular, we'll want to make sure you see. And we'll mention those as we go through the, the con coverage here. Also, Scott W says, Ashe is the best. Had a great time at the con. Love you all. Hey, Scott. Thanks for the shout out. Thanks for being a great friend and uh, mod on our Facebook group. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no other notes, really. So let's just get right to it. Ice and Fire Con report. Yeah. All right. So all three of us went. We and Rita as well. And we saw a lot of friends there. It was great. We, Shay, I mentioned the meetup with Radio Westeros where people got to drink uh, beard bar stuff. And one fun thing they did at the con was they gave a, you got a maester's chain when you check in. And going to a certain panel or doing a certain event, you get a little link to add to your chain. So it's kind of like a con beard where people add the little... Yeah, Con different colors. Yeah, colors on their on their lanyard. This is a little a play on that. Uh, yeah, you know, I really I lost track of of collecting mine. I was doing so well collecting a couple, and then I just missed it at one thing I did, and I was like, I'm done now. I've missed it all, <laughs> and I stopped collecting it. <laughs> I don't know about you, is easy or you, Sean, if you collected any Maester links, but I was disappointed in my Maester chain. Yeah, there are two things I did a poor job of, which was getting the links for the different events I went to and taking pictures. Oh, I just, yeah. I took maybe a dozen, and I should have taken a hundred in a dozen. Yeah. Well, I made up for I'm it. I'm glad other people Shay did. took a ton. Yeah. I, I also did not take many. Considering I took, like, about, you know, 1,500 uh, photos and videos. Yeah. That's yeah. all. Which is a, a good time to remind people to follow us on social media, because that is one of the best places to find the bulk of those pictures. We're sharing a few in this video, but, of course, there's no way we're sharing that many 1500 <laughs> in a video so yeah follow uh, shea is miranese not on twitter and our facebook group you should see some of them as well as uh, well from people besides us as well other members yeah, of the yeah you can add, you can add us on um facebook if you want i'm we're open to that and i yeah. share them there but otherwise i also shared a google i tweeted a google photos album so you don't have to be on facebook to see the first album i shared it's got like 250 photos and videos um, and next I'm going to be doing the musical attorney. So there's more pictures to come. Yeah. So let's talk real quick about the panels we did. Uh, we'll each take turn talking about the panels we did. Um, and we'll go around the, the circle here and then we'll talk clip lash last, which we all did together. So the meetup meetup was pretty straightforward. We discussed some future plans and, and just hung out. There's nothing super important or groundbreaking to report there. It's just a lot of fun. I did three other regular panels. We should start back, which was the first panel of the weekend. That was with um, Radio Westeros and SCAD of Davos Fingers. And we talked about, as I said, the prologue. We should start back. Mm, I, bet you, I bet you guessed that. 
then um, I did Molding a Monarch with Chloe and Pat Doherty. And that was really fun. Chloe from Girls Gone Canon, that is. And Molding a Monarch, we talked about the comparison, Bran and Danny and Fagon and their upbringings and their family structures and how that affects people. And then we took the conversation a lot of other places. So that's a, that's a really good one to check out. That panel should be posted eventually. And uh, I did with Elena and Ray Fury. Elena Keller is one of the um, long-term attendees. I think she might even be one of the eight-year members of, of Ice and FireCon. I'm not sure, but she's a volunteer. And we did a panel on Wars of the Roses. Wars of the Roses, a song of ice and fire influence. Now, the thing about con panels is they're shorter than podcast episodes. So there's a lot that we couldn't cover there. It's a topic that I was glad to get back to. I hadn't thought about it in a while. And it's inspired me to maybe do a fuller episode for the pod here. Um, because it's a great topic that has so much with the early stages of Game of Thrones. Not as much the later stuff, but the early, the breakout, the Starks and Lannisters and all that. It's really good. It's also just a really interesting time period. So something we could have a lot of fun with down the line. Uh, Shea, you want to go next? Um, Sean should go next. Okay, Sean, you go next. Uh, let's see. The I, I want to say that there was one super groundbreaking thing that happened in our meetup panel was the drinks I got to make for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that was drink-breaking, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the... The panel I did was with uh, Game of Thrones and Tara and Lady Gwen and Lady Gwen. Um, and it was uh, make it or break it. Or, Nailed it or, or failed it. Nailed it or yeah. failed it. Nailed it or failed it. Yeah. Which, so we were basically comparing how well the show did with the book characters. And Tara had done, um, Tara like puts together Ice of Fire Con. She does a million things. She's awesome. But she had done like a poll with her patrons of who thought, you know, had made it or break it. And, it was characters or scenes or yeah well we were talking about characters generally speaking and um but like i think a a big takeaway was that so for example let's say that in season one they nailed danny season two season three season four season five finally in season eight they like screw it all up (laughs) what's that danny in season eight But so you know, how, what percent do they have to get it really well mm. versus screw it up to you yeah. know? And it was kind of like we we realized a lot of characters were mostly they were nailed, but then they uh, failed it. Like maybe as the show went on, there was a pretty mm. consensus that they totally ruined anything that had anything to do with Dorn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was, it was an interesting discussion of like you know, we had like the audience were like voting on what they thought That's about cool. the characters too. It was a, yeah. Um, I also want to point out another panel I went to. I wasn't on, but I attended. And I guess maybe even a bigger point I want to make. Every panel I've ever been on or attended, like you said, they're shorter. You know, they're usually it's like theoretically it's an hour, but it's a little shorter because you got to be done for the next group to come on. And, uh, and you usually have multiple people talking. So it's hard for any one person to get real deep. And a lot of times I especially like to get the audience involvement, questions and comments and stuff. Yeah. Um, but almost every single one I've ever been on, at least once I've been like, Oh my God. Like I've come away with some new idea yeah. or some, some inspiring moment. I, I, I love doing and, and going to panels so much. One of them was with Chloe and Emmett. Um, and they were, uh, they were generally talking about like predictions where, where they think the books are going to go. Yeah. And I just, it's, it was right. And literally they were like, all right, there's one minute left. We'll take one last question. If someone in the audience asked a question about the idea of a, I've forgotten now exactly what the question was, but it was about the idea of, um, you know, Stannis. Is Stannis going to burn Shireen? Yeah. How that's going to play out, you know? And and it clicked in my head. I wonder if there's a chance that Stannis would burn 
Shireen or Melisandre, maybe Stannis tries to stop it or doesn't realize it, whatever. It, with the idea of like defeating Winterfell or removing Winter or something, but what it actually does is bring Jon back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and whether or not Melisandre would realize that would happen, or if they did, what kind of guilt Jon might have? He said a girl died to bring him back. He Oof, had to yeah. Stannis. Yeah, it Ouch. just sort of this whole new like train of thoughts for me. That's cool. Anyways, yeah, you're right, though. This is just a hype-up cons and panels. You're right, though. That is true. Like, I'm from me, my perspective, I love going to panels because, I mean, I do a lot of panels. <laughs> I like to, but I also, <laughs> I do a lot of podcasting, but I also listen to a lot of podcasts. So I like going to panels. I like hearing what people have to say. And you're right. There's always, there's a lot of really good takes. The the direct audience participation is really nice. It's sort of like what we have here with live stream, but it's it's more direct, obviously, when you're in person. But the audience participation is is, is valuable in, in, in a variety of forms. And it, it supports another thought I've had a few times, too, this sort of uh, understandable impatience about wins coming out. But, man, we're not out of stuff to talk about. Nope, we're not, not out of close. new ideas. You know, it's a, I, I'm okay with the, yeah. taking taking a little more time. We'll just so. keep going, yeah. So speaking of, um, one fun thing we do, um, Ashay, you had a panel with David J. Peterson. Yeah, I did have a panel with David J. Peterson and Zach Louie of Game of Owns, our good our good friend. Um, that's kind of why I was on a panel with David was that Zach and David are, are close friends and uh, they wanted to do a panel together and I wanted to do a panel with Zach. So it just kind of worked out that way. It was a little high pressure for me because I... I'd met David before, but doing a panel with him was um, a little intimidating, I have to say. But people came up to me throughout the weekend and said they really liked my panel, which was on the Game of Thrones effect. And you might wonder, well, what's that about, Ashea? Well, there's a chapter Aziz and I wrote called for, for a book called The Thrones Effect, where we talked a lot about Game of Thrones references. We talked about impacts in people's personal lives things like it being referenced in court cases it being <laughs> brought up uh you know in, political in, campaigns can, yeah political yeah, campaigns so like just like the effect like uh it was a wide ranging topic and one thing we talked about in this panel um i'm going to put a picture on the screen is tattoos um we had at the end of the panel um we had people in the audience who had game of thrones tattoos come up and um show off and as you can see travis here in this picture he has his whole leg is a, a Tyrion tattoo and other stuff on it but he's got like a a lot of tattoos um, <laughs> so that was cool so he's got this picture um he also has like the valerian the valerian dagger on his on the back of his leg yeah, it's, yeah he's it's an intense set of tattoos it's talk about the game of thrones effect huh. right yeah. but yeah so if, for <laughs> that i um i researched a, a lot um more tv shows and movies that referenced game of thrones and i came up with like 80 that uh reference it and um I think long term we're going to do an episode on that where I compile them all. Like I actually go find the clips and I edit it and I make a make a video and then we talk about it. So that'll you know be a year from now or something. <laughs> but uh, we are going to do more with that. Um, but hopefully that panel got recorded because I, I think that'll be a fun one for people. In a year you'll have to do the hot D effect too. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. That's just all part the of the hot D effect. D effect. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot. There's been uptick of hot d's around <laughs> the world since house of the dragon came out <laughs> you know i did a panel with david peterson at the first kind of thrones and i think i was too naive to know i should be intimidated 
Um, <laughs> you learned later how smart he is. We also, like Aziz mentioned, we we threw Quiplash, which um, Aziz and Sean were great help to me in running it. I put a picture on the screen of uh, some of the audience watching Quiplash, and um, you know, I came up with m- most of the prompts, most and the prompts, so yeah. it and they were good. They were really good. Anyways, I, I was I was awfully proud of it. I have to say, it was a raging success. Um, I'm just skipping through. Whoops, I did not mean to do what I just did, which was uh, move to another image. Anyways, um, I personally I'm gonna ask about it, but I think I would like to run a second Quiplash next year. I think there should be one Sunday night. Uh, like everything's oh. kind of like died down. Everyone's gone, but like people are still around. I think I think another game would be fun. There's always the the and a lot of, if you've never been to a convention there's often called like the the dead cat party or the dead cat dead balance, dog which is, or dead dog i've never yeah. heard it called a dead cat party it's, i've only heard it called a dead dog i have to tell you right now well i've heard that expression used myself and I, yeah, it's, same, I, it's the same concept yeah for sure for sure i'm just surprised <laughs> anyway to, to not have heard it the uh the idea being like not everyone goes home when the con is over because your flights some people leave in the next morning or some people stay in that city for to see something or just to visit family so there's always like a 20 30 percent still there and you gotta have fun with those people you make do do your best yeah so yeah there's always fun stuff that happens even when the con ends and i, I would like to just like uh, maybe have another we, we did a quiplash stream for um the podcast one time uh for ice and fire con um when they did it virtually or whatever so i kind of would like to do that again yeah, um, that people fun. have expressed an interest so we yeah, should we look into that, that. Um, for sure. Speaking of cats, here's a great picture from the con of four cats and a groundhog taken by Chelsea Rapso. These cats were, were I mean, they're these ginger cats were polydactyl. They're like Hemingway cats with the extra claws. And they were so cute and friendly. And we all were feeding them. And also they were cool with this groundhog. They were just the Deer Creek, <laughs> the Deer Creek Park cats. They were just used to people. We, at one point, uh, I was hanging out with uh, Jinx, and we saw those cats and the groundhog. The same, different spot. You know, that wasn't our photo. And we're just sitting there, and then a skunk rolls up. Just, <laughs> a skunk just walks up like some sort of animal <laughs> conclave. And I, being being so surprised, I was like, a skunk! And that scared the skunk off. And two of the kittens followed it. They were like, oh, let's go see. what. Like, they didn't chase it. They are just like, well, let's see where he's going. <laughs> it was very entertaining. Hmm. Uh, so there it's definitely a fun little bonus to the whole con <laughs> these little actual cat cute animal appearances <laughs> yeah so it's the whole con by the way is that it's it's even when you fly in it's still like an hour's drive to this lodge it's right on a lake it's beautiful it's yeah, uh, really it's nice. very nature centric and gorgeous you know so there every year at ice and fire con there is a tournament of two which has two events usually it's there's a sword fighting tournament the swords are made of foam or well they're made of foam <laughs> and the jousting uses pool uh, the foam noodles that people use in pools also very entertaining and but this year had a particularly special thing happen first of all shout out to the winners uh arthur won the um hmm? wasn't it arthur who won the the joust right i think he won the joust oh, and then, yeah, and brian, brian hawkins. hawkins won the uh sword fighting with uh dressed up as a mashup maester like a wasn't he a like a dragon age maester or fire emblem maester? It was, it's fire emblem fire, yes, emblem, fire maester, emblem there was a, i'll show this picture i yeah. suppose then um is a good sh- a good time for that i will cue it up but um oh, it's so hard to do anything right now i have to say oh come on now bear with the share and her 
COVID brain here. Um, here we go. This is the Fire Emblem group. Fire Emblem Three Houses. It's a, it's a game on Switch and other consoles. But uh, there is a good group of them, as you can see, in like their elaborate cosplay. Um, and it's a bunch of them were in the tourney because in Fire Emblem, part of the like conceit is that you're battling each other and stuff like that. So it was like particularly fitting for them to uh, be uh, pitted against one another and all that. And so they, they all that whole group had a had a good t- fun time like chanting for each other. And they stuff were very like happy that, that they're one of theirs won. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy that it, Brian was uh, Maester Hanneman, as you can see. That was the the character's name is Hanneman, and he was a Maester mashup version of it. Um, you can see him in the far right. Um, anyway, so yeah, that was a uh, pretty cool. At the end of the tournament, a much cooler thing happened. I have a video for everyone. And oh, should we just watch the video? Yeah, I think so. Okay, Let's I won't comment until works. the video's over. Here we go on her mark. <laughs> being proposed to by pat doherty <laughs> so a little play by play in case yes. it wasn't clear he at the end of the tournament uh dom stands up wearing a mask and he issues like a challenge like he's playing the role of a villain and pat stands up and accepts the challenge they did a choreographed fight and he wins dom really really it was awesome by the way yeah. they were like like jumping and rolling Dom like and- fell yeah. on the ground oh, yeah. to sell it like on the asphalt so he really like a plus by Dom there. And then so Pat wins and he says, I'm going to name a tournament or name a, uh, a queen, a queen of, love. of love and beauty. And Mallory gets up and, and walks over and she's, you know, obviously o- overcome with emotion. And he drops to one knee, pulls out the ring. Everyone goes crazy. And then her parents appear like nobody knew her parents <laughs> were going to be there. And so she's just blown away like this amazing moment and her parents are there that she didn't know and later we hear someone's like i I saw these like two older people like hanging out at the playground like they were hiding and i was like what the hell are these two like they're just like spying on the tournament like it's okay if you come watch folks you know but but then it made much sense later (laughs) they they didn't want to be seen (laughs) so that was just fabulous what a great memory yeah mallory mallory's brother was there too yeah her whole family was it was very sweet definitely made me cry so San Rixian, our very own San Rixian, is engaged to our very own Pat Doherty. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Very awesome. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, moving on, there was a musical. It's become a little bit of a tradition at Ice and Fire Con to have a musical. And uh, they just keep raising the bar. They keep doing so well. L- last time it was Westeros, an American musical. This year it was The Six Queens. Queens, which is about the six queens of uh, Henry VIII. It's that's a that is a musical on Broadway and all that. It's go uh, quite popular right now. I had heard of it, but I didn't know that this was a reference to it when I watched it. So I really got to watch it with completely uh, fresh set of eyes and ears. Although I did watch the original six musical 
uh, two nights ago um, after seeing it because I wanted to know what the references were. And mm. let me tell you, they killed it and definitely like elevated the material on its own level. Like there's a lot of things that I was like, is this is this just like taken straight from six or was this created by Dom and Anna and Chloe? Like it was um, written by them. And so some things, yes, absolutely were just came straight from the, their brilliant minds. Yeah, so there's six queens in this context. Obviously, it's adapted for A Song of Ice and Fire. You have Queen Regent, that's Cersei, and that was played by Tara, uh, who was the founder of the con. And then we had the Queen, or Queen, Dowager Queen, which is, yeah. or Queen Consort, which is <laughs> Britt Brown playing Marjorie. Yes. Then we had, um, we had Qu- Queen Kraken, which was <laughs> Asha, played by Lydia Bringerud. And of course, uh, it was explained why, you know, she's not, she never did actually become queen, but she was the moot, and, you know, and in the show, she becomes queen. So that's all part of the, the dialogue in the musical. Then we had the Queen Maker, which is Ariane, played by El Vallejo. She really elevated it, as you said. Uh-huh. And then we had, uh, her sister Cat Vallejos playing Dr- Danny, Queen Dragon, and then Anna playing, uh, Sansa, Queen Wolf. So. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. You can see them all in the picture right there. Along with, um, there were some other people that they added, including young Griff there, <laughs> yeah. right? By Daisy. They were awesome <laughs> as, as young Griff and Matt Foran as John Connington. And they, they did it like, if anyone saw the sketch Sprockets, the recurring sketch on SNL, Sprockets, it was a little bit like that. It was like, the House of Blackfire. It was so funny. It was so funny. And <laughs> as you can see, we had Dom uh, was DJ Euron back there. There was also um, uh, Mark Swan. Mo was Illyrio, the cheesemonger. And in this picture, you can see he was just like eating a full block of cheese. Yeah, which she's, she's not exaggerating. Mark, he did the scene as Illyrio and he's got lines so he's talking during the scene but he's got a block of cheese and he just takes a bite of it every once in a while and by the time the scene was over he had eaten the whole block of cheese (laughs) and we cannot forget whatever I could eat a block of cheese (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we can't forget about Joy Loves there. They were um, Varys and like a, a very drag Varys with like big <laughs> eyelashes and the bald cap. And they were awesome they too. Were, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I really, I, I, it's going to be up on YouTube for all of y'all to watch uh, pretty soon. They've been working on it. Um, so I, I will definitely be sharing it. I don't want to spoil things too much for y'all, but it was, it was, it was really funny. Yeah. Like the music was good. Everyone was good. The costumes were good. But for me personally, what matters is when it's funny and it was hysterical. It was hysterical. Yeah, it was so good. I highly recommend it. Please check it out. We'll, we'll remind folks when it's posted. Yeah, we absolutely will. And I, I'm well, having a bunch more uh, pictures and uh, mm-hmm. gifts and stuff. I love like, the gifts that I've made from it so far. Everyone dancing is just, they've cracked me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so there was, I just want to say in general, this musical and a bunch of other stuff at the con, I'm just blown away by the talent that's <laughs> in our circle of, of friends. Yeah, there you was know, some... and, and it comes to show at this con. It's just, Blows my mind. Yeah, the performance contest was uh, really awesome every year. This year as well, wasn't it? Like, my, like we're talking about some of our favorites from the performance contest right now. Then, right, Aziz? Yeah, I can sure. show you. Here is a photo I took. Um, Nami and Becca and Shelby, and unfortunately, I actually don't know the name of the girl who was Cersei. I realize now as I say this out loud. But they did um, a. a, a little performance of Lady Marmalade, like from Moulin Rouge, but Lady Westeros, whereas you <laughs> see they were Marjorie, 
uh, Elena, Cersei, and Asha, and it was so good. Like I- I'm a huge Moulin Rouge fan, so I was super biased, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some other awesome performances, too. There was a really great performance by a man and some cohorts who has become uh, kind of a recurring performer. The thespian scad of Davos Fingers with Britt Brown, who we just mentioned was Marjorie, and Chris Cabeth, Lord of the Bricks. Our mm. longtime patron and friend, many time attendee of, of of Ice and Fire Con, did the scene in Game of Thrones chapter two where Ned and Robert go into the crypts and Brit is playing Liana like a ghost of Liana. It was moving. Oh man, they killed it. Yeah, they turned all the lights yeah, off. It was all spooky. Yeah. Good sense of theater for the whole thing. Yeah. It was so good. The emotion like Scad getting angry as Robert, like about Robert and Liana. Oh yeah. I'm choking up a little. It was good. It was really, really good. They they nailed it, and uh, it was wonderful. Shout out to them. Good job, y'all. And they 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 planned it three years ago. They were supposed to do this in Ice and Fire Con 2020. <laughs> so like, should we still do it? They're like, yeah. And we're all glad they did. So great job there. There was um, also our own Koi Venazi, who um, is a listener of ours, and we met at Worldcon actually as well. Did um, performed a poem that he wrote. But he also combined it with this, um, anyone who's been watching Crusader Kings 2 streams will appreciate if you look on the screen, you'll see he did, um, his own Crusader Kings 2, like, character sheet where he could put the traits on it. And so he did the green bard for when he did his poem. You can, so you can actually take, he had all the little cutouts. You could, they had styrofoam on it. So you could go up and put, like, strong and genius or, or, you know, different character traits that come up in Crusader Kings and just stick them onto your and that's, character honestly, portrait I think and then my stand biggest, and hold it. I think that's my dis- maybe my biggest disappointment of the weekend is that I forgot to go into that room to take a photo. I wanted to take one as Asha when I did my uh, cosplay and like take that. F- I-, I-, I meant to, and I just forgot. Well, have, maybe we'll have, maybe we'll try to get him to bring it back. I did. I played with it, but there was no one around. I was by myself, oh, so no one took my picture. So, so yeah. like, it was after con. It was after a panel. I was like, oh, there's that Koi's thing. Yeah, damn. I hadn't seen it yet, and I was just playing with it, but no one else was there. <laughs> yeah, it was super cool um and it's guilty undertaker asked in the chat for briefly i had shown the um group photo when i was transitioning and yes that was an aerial photograph that was a drone ob obinator ob brown um is a videographer and had a drone that he brought and he took the group photo from up in the sky it was so cool we were all uh, just like how far away is that thing gonna go <laughs> just, yeah, kept going. just kept going <laughs> it was like way um, out over the lake we're like ah don't fall in the lake I'll put it on the screen again. There you go. So, yeah, it's nice because you can actually, like, usually every year in the group photo, you know, you can't see everyone's faces. Like, maybe you see, like, your hair sticking out. But this year, it's like, no, you can see everyone, actually. Uh, I think they did take some standard straight-on photos, which they did, yeah. probably will be better this year because we were on a hill, so they kind of raised the back row up a little bit. Yes. I'm sure more photos will come out, but it, one or the other was awesome to have the drone. So another really amazing moment during the performances was Lakota did the speech from season eight where Danny is addressing her troops. It's actually yeah. Dothraki. People thought it was High Valyrian, but it's Dothraki. And because uh, she's speaking to her Dothraki troops. I have a clip of it if we want to watch it. It's up to let's you. do. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, here, let's see this. Ooh, it's it's tilted to the side. <laughs> Everyone turn your head to the side. <laughs> Danny cosplay looks awesome. 
Inventor della Donut, Alanisto Valeriat, Ingino Garerat, Ava, Vala, Regna, Tova Gregioma Vortis, Greva Henoma Pregelat. Awesome, and I missed it in the video, but shortly after that you pan over and david j peterson was standing there watching and applauding yeah. heartily imagine reciting a language that you that someone else wrote and doing a performing it and then looking over to your right and realizing the guy who invented that language is standing there smiling watching you do it like that is amazing like nothing could be more like you did a great job than having the guy who invented the language just and he just walked he heard her he wasn't in the crowd he heard her from the next room and was like oh I'm going in there. I'm summoned. <laughs> <laughs> and then so the so the, the room the the energy in the room started to pick up as people started to notice him. Like I was like, oh look, David is watching and he's happy. He's like he gave her the thumbs up and the cheer. And he's kind of a laid back guy, so you know his uh, when he's a little bit emphatic, it means a lot. It's, it's not like when I'm emphatic, you know, <laughs> I'm emphatic all the time. So. Yeah, there, it was actually um kind of cool the this shadow and bone thing um, because David worked on shadow and bone. So actually, Lakota and Megan and Britt and all of them had a couple of great David J. Peterson interactions that weekend <laughs> because he did get to see their shadow and bone cosplay shoot. So what happened was I was talking to David after his presentation. Just his he was very cool about it. He just wanted to. He was like, anyone else want to talk more? We'll go out in the hall. So there's a couple of us talking with him. And then I, you know, I leave, I go walking down the hall and I see them getting ready to do the shadow and bone shoot, like a couple hundred feet away. And I'm like, Hey, I, I just got out of this David J. Peterson panel. And he was talking about shadow and bone. He's friends with Lee Bardugo. Like they text all the time. Lee Bardugo wrote shadow and bone. Not only that, but Lee Bardugo was in the brotherhood without banners. The first major song of ice and fire fan group. So she was a fan of, she was in the group before she wrote shadow and bone. So I'm like, I'm like, David, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, tell him to come over here. I'm like, all right. Yeah. yeah. So I'll go and he, he, he probably would have just seen them anyway because they're just right there. But I'm like, hey, David, look, they're doing a shadow and bone cosplay. He's like, oh, let me check that out. And he goes over and he takes pictures of them. And he's like, I'm going to send these directly to Lee. <laughs> so, so they're like, what? <laughs> so, so That's awesome. The other thing that happened uh, specifically for Megan, who did um, was in the Shadow and Bone cosplay group, but she also cosplayed um, as Sansa. Lovely, lovely uh, work um, as a costumer. Like yes. she created, it. I mean, really, really so talented. Um, but uh, on Twitter, I, I can say, because I won't give it away because she is private. So her likes don't show up if you don't follow her but george's wife paris is on twitter we follow her we do and um she liked two tweets from ice and fire con one was a picture of me and web uh nettles and it was like i have to say like a very personal tweet like directed towards me like a shea is very sweet like it, it was I, i'm still freaking out that she liked that already <laughs> i have to say <laughs> Um, but she liked a second tweet also from Web Nettles, um, Girl Nettles on Twitter, um, which was a photo of Megan as Sansa and uh, Nettles. Um, so that's pretty cool that basically Meg had two of her favorite authors see her cosplay. Because probably if Paris was browsing Twitter, she might have been like, hey, look, George, look at <laughs> these people out. in cosplay. Like, I don't know. It, it, either way, it uh, really warms my heart to think of like Paris in the Ice and Fire Con hashtag 
with George looking at photos. That is so cool. Yeah. And um, in case y'all didn't catch it as well, Girl Nettles is was um, Aria for our for Mercy, Mercy chapter. Yes. So she's uh She's, she's a star. Friend. Yeah, she's she, great. Yeah, no, she was awesome hanging out with her uh, at the con in, in general. So it's like a so much energy and so much fun and all that. Um, and we got actually, I actually I have a photo I can share mm-hmm. of the two of us together. I realize yeah. um, that I pulled up in a moment here. Here we go. I got these instax of the two of us because I'd been super excited to meet her because she's been a listener for a long time. And again, she did the Mercy stuff. So I was like, it's it's Aria. It is the Aria. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yep. Well, next up, uh, one more performance we want to mention is the Manimals. The Manimals played a show there. It's their first time playing a show at Ice and Fire Con since 2017. So it's been a while. Really great time. Um, they have, they played their album Seven, which is a theme a concept album based on a song of ice and fire. And they start, but they started off with their uh, cover of um of, B- of sabotage? the Beastie Boys song sabotage. sabotage. Yeah, I was like, wait, what's the name of that song? Called Heron Hall, <laughs> which is a video of. It's hilarious and and fun and a great song. So I recommend uh, checking that out and just checking out the Manimals in general. Haley uh, um, Bowery is the singer. And uh, they're they're great people. Yeah, I know the show is yeah, that, so good. I mean, everyone's singing along in the audience, and yeah, I've had those songs stuck in my head for the past week. It was <laughs> it was it was quite, they were put on quite a show. So it, much it was, energy, yeah. They did more. They did. Yeah. I have to say, the Manimals did more than um, just put on that show because they also, along with. Um, uh, Game of Owns, Zach and Hannah. I mean, Zach, Zach is uh, Haley's boyfriend, um, if you didn't know. But uh, along with Game of Owns and with um, Chloe of Girls Gone Cannon, they threw an awesome party, Beyond the Wall party, with like actual decorations and like a Weirwood Grove photo booth area. And like, <laughs> I, I, they really went all out for their party, I have to say. It was, pr- it was pretty impressive. I have. Um, a photo here of um this spiral see they they this when you walked up to the cabins they had this out like in the grass uh creepy skull spirals and stuff so it was pretty dope yeah <laughs> it was a great time all around um, <clears throat> any um any final thoughts on the con before we talk about the david j peters stuff, i have stuff still yeah, i absolutely okay, cool. have still have stuff to go over okay cool um take it away then I will. I will. Absolutely. Well, first of all, we never talked about our green man cosplay, which was that we got this group together where we all wore green man outfits. It was me, <laughs> Aziz, Sean, um, Scott Wartman, who's in the chat right now, Rita, and um, Tommy Pappas. Yeah. And mm. we all had different kinds of horns or similar horns. We all had horns. And uh, you see a gif there. If you don't get the reference, this is a reference to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, Charlie dresses up as a green man and the gang gets invincible. And another episode. Wait, I thought it was a reference to the Isle of Faith. <laughs> <laughs> um, now so, you know what they look like. But, you know, we had, yeah, this is what they look like. We had so much fun running around in those outfits. At least I did. And yelling green man at the tourney. Sean actually was in the tourney in his green man outfit. And so that was pretty pretty cool whereas um i have a fun i got teamed up against her i would have won (laughs) (laughs) i have a fun tiny little clip here to show y'all from the tourney let's play (laughs) 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 (laughs)
anyways, so that was a, a little glimpse of the tourney. Yes, those are tentacles on my head. I am <laughs> What else was there? More pictures. As you can see, Aziz had tentacle horns. That was fun. Which, by the way, I'm going to show my shirt again. Oh, uh, yes. Now they can. Yes, the horns. So my Branzig shirt, which by a shout out to Stark Reminders, who who did this shirt, as well as uh, the house beard shirt that I've worn several times. Th- these horns kind of look like the tentacles yeah. <laughs> that I was wearing. <laughs> so, uh, hey, it all fits. I'm uh, turning into Branzig personally. I also appreciated this moment from um, the costume parade when Alex Nolan, who cosplays as Tyrion, uh, slapped Cyrus, who cosplayed as Joffrey, and knocked the crown off their head. So that was uh, I really yelled at him. That was quite. It was hard to hear, but he said, "Get your something's name out of my." He did the Will Smith Smith thing thing, as he slapped Joffrey. Um, you just couldn't hear it very well. <laughs> another highlight for me personally was um, listener Allie, Black Allie Blackwood, as she's going by, um, came to the con with her cat, as you can see in this photo, in a backpack. So there was her <laughs> so cat cool. at the con, CC. Uh, and um, other highlights for me, I just want to go over cosplay. Our our podcasting queens, uh, Lady Gwyn and Chloe, did yeah, Queen Rainies. The Queen Who Never Was, and Queen Sansa, Queen in the North, with the crown and all that. Um, so that's a little pick of them to highlight. Um, this is, I'll get, we'll get to this David J. Peterson stuff in a second. I went to one panel, um, Gaze of Thrones, which had Lo, Sam, Rohan, and Elena, again, who was on a panel with Aziz. And that one was a, a great fun time. I'm hoping that one had no problems and gets posted. Mm-hmm. And um, I do believe I have one more thing for y'all. Where is this? It is... Did I get through all the... Oh, yes. I wanted to do a special shout out to some of my favorite cosplay, which was um, these two Twitteros folks, um, mm. Thought and um, Lady Thistle of House Flinch, um, who uh, the heir of House Tyrell thought a T H O H T. Anyways, it's, it's a funny name, I think. But they did this amazing, as you can see, Willis Tyrell and Marjorie, where he has the falcon and he has the cane, and like, I mean, like it. It was just, it was. Oh, whoops! I did not transition. It was just, it's just been on Green Man this whole time. Uh, <laughs> the whole time I was switching images, and it was on Green Man. That's yeah. <laughs> but it's okay now you can see Got a quick scroll through now you yeah. can see though um these, these uh tyrells which uh the tyrells i don't think get enough love personally so i was like extra happy to see these like very fabulous looking tyrells they um, they look amazing when they're yeah. all dressed up like that i was like hey, maybe there should be more tyrells the way, they, the way uh, that looks <laughs> and, I, and i did a great cosplay group um where i mentioned i mentioned 1970s a song of ice and fire um rita sean's wife was in it as a tyrell speaking of and um, we had another listener, Christina Dillsdale, was um, another 70s uh, Red Priestess. Um, so that was pretty fun. I'm just skipping through my photos because y'all didn't see the ones I was on before. <laughs> so I should make sure that they show up. But like I said, I did post a whole bunch um, that you can you can see. Uh, there, I'm trying to skip. There's the ones that I skipped here briefly showing y'all because i don't know what showed up but um the david j peterson stuff is he did get a couple pictures that mm-hmm. he wanted me to share so you can tell me when you want me to put which one on the screen okay sure should i move on to that yes okay cool 
All right, right so, now I have this animate singular plural thing on the screen. Is that what you want? Uh, the SEPTA thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we can just leave that up for now. I'll get to talk. I'll speak to that in a minute. So, yeah, this was really exciting. Um, as I said, there were some technical difficulties with this panel, so it may not have been recorded, which is why I want to go into extra detail. First of all, David J. Peterson is like the guy in Hollywood for doing languages. If you didn't know to the extent of which he is almost the only presence, he's it's changing a little bit. His his partner is also very talented at this, and they have a YouTube show where they make a, li- a language live. Like every episode, they get a little farther in the process. So they're making a conlang live on their show. That's every Thursday, I believe. <clears throat> so what is a conlang? Conlang means constructed language as opposed to one that developed sort of quote-unquote naturally, like the languages we speak. He has done all the following shows. The Witcher, The 100, Defiance, Into the Badlands, Starcrossed, Dominion, Penny Dreadful, Shannara, Emerald City, Shadow and Bone, Halo, Lovecraft Country, Another Life, Motherland Fort Salem, every Game of Thrones show, including Blood Moon, the old Valyria prequel that never got to script phase, and House of the Dragon, and some other stuff that he hasn't, you know, isn't talking about yet. Uh, he also did Dune, including the sign languages, both sign languages for the Harkonnens and the Atreides. He did Thor Dark World. He did Warcraft The Beginning. He did Bright. He did Rhea and the Last Dragon. He did Doctor Strange. And he did The Christmas Chronicles 1 and 2. So he wrote... Raya, by the way. Oh, sorry, Raya and the Last Dragon. My bad. Anyway. And there's... Each and, one, each and every one of those has at least one language. Some of them have multiples, and he developed all those. So it's like, wow. He also did some game called Arena of Valor, which I don't know anything about, but it has Conlang in it as well. So that's pretty cool. That's just to show how incredible he is and how much he's done. He got started because Game of Thrones, give him some credit. They were the first show ever to approach the Conlang Society or any con, any person who had ever made a language before to ask for a language. You, you might say, well, I've heard fake languages on TV shows before. Yes, but they weren't made by a Conlang person. They were just made on the fly by someone who had never made a language before. So this was the first time a show had a constructed language made by someone who had made a language before so they had prior experience with it so that's pretty cool but the conlang society that david was a part of was so down on the whole process because like all these shows just weren't doing that they specifically were like we're not going to bother to plan for this so when this happened they downplay they were like ah they're not really going to do this so david and four other people entered a contest they had to make a language and win with a made language they had to win this contest like they had to actually do all the work first it's the way he put it is like it's like you're an architect and they're like each of you make a building we're only going to keep one of them though <laughs> so like you have four buildings that are just okay well we don't need that <laughs> so you made a whole building and it's nothing so anyway but he, uh, so he won with dothraki he made dothraki and and won with it and so season one he also was designing scroth the White Walker language, because they wanted to have that, as you can see. And the prologue, the White Walkers talk. He spoke it to us. He, sp- he spoke Scroth live to us. It was amazing. Um, I don't have a recording of it, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. You have <laughs> another was... recording of him you'll want me to share. Yeah, I do have a different recording of him that we'll share, but unfortunately no Scroth. Now, they eventually just decided to cancel Scroth. They're like, okay, w- they decided it was more menacing to have the White Walkers not talk at all, which is like, okay, fine, whatever. But he decided the way he made Scroth, it was going to be sounds that a dead body can make. Like no tongue, like clicking and breathing. Like just he kept in mind the physical structure of a dead body or a dead person. And that's where the like 
what sounds could that make, you know? And uh, that's really neat, the way he approached that. So do you have some info for us about what's on the screen right now? Well, not yet. Oh, okay. I'm not to that point yet. Oh, okay. So the word for thank you, remember that line in season one, he says, uh, there's no, that line, there's no Dothraki word for thank you. Remember that line, that famous line? There was a Dothraki word for thank you. So David had to go delete that. He's <laughs> like, well, it wouldn't be canon. <laughs> so he had to erase it. He's like, I did make it. Oh, well. <laughs> so uh, season three is when he got a whole lot more work because High Valyrian was introduced. And that was really cool. He got to in- make High Valyrian. And then actually, we'll just come back to that photo. It's oh. it's going to be out of order. Okay. Do the... The video now. So okay. in season five, you may remember. Well, first play the thing and then I'll describe it. Okay. Here we go. No, oh, that's time. Hold on. It showed up, but it was like super tiny. Sorry, y'all. You know. No problem. You understand the cold yeah. gets me. There we go. And there that was, Aziz. What was that? Okay, so season five, when they're at Marine and besieging Marine, the guy yells down a bunch of insults at them. That's that line. He's yelling the insults down at them. And then... uh, Dario fights him and kills him. In the book, it's Strong Belwas. Now, if you remember in Strong Belwa, in, in that in the book version, there's no dialogue. It's just he's saying stuff, and Danny's like, "What's he saying?" You know, and, and it's something, and then it's a Monty Python reference. It's like, "Oh, he's just, you know, I fart in your general direction or whatever that kind of thing." So it's like, "Oh, George put in Monty Python references." Dan, as in Dan and Dave, caught that, and so like a few hours before they filmed the scene, they emailed David and were like, "Can you translate?" the your father your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries that's what I he blew my nose on you yes that's what's being said right there <laughs> that's the translation <laughs> that is the monty python speech so they inserted that into season five kind of on a whim as a little easter egg joke the the, the french knight speech so that's what the hero of marine is saying your father your mother was a hamster your, your father was a hamster your mother smelt of elderberries and all that that whole line so how cool is that <laughs> um so something interesting about Daenerys' dialogue. Uh, in season one, she says her Dothraki is wrong, but it's on purpose because she's just learning it. So that's a really nice detail. Like her, some of her tenses are off and it's like, oh, okay, that's cool. So that's like kind of realistic. By season seven and eight, she's speaking it more fluently. Uh, I mean, even actually sooner than that, but regardless, she's fluent by the end. But security, so he works with every single actor directly for their lines. Like, okay, no, say that a little differently, say this a little differently, say that a little. But for season seven and eight, security around the show was so heightened that they would send him the lines and then tell him a different character. It's like, these lines are for Jorah, but they were Tyrion's lines. So that way, like, just is a way to battle leaks as if David was a possible leaker. So that really threw him off a little because he's like, well, this was supposed to, I thought this was for Jorah, and he says things a certain way, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's someone else, you know? So that's, that's wild. Yeah. Um, he developed the, uh, uh, children of the forest language for the show. And then they were like, well, we need you to make it simpler because it's not going to be actors. 
the children of the forest are stunt people so they're not actors they need it simpler so they need to be able to mouth the words and then they're going to add the dialogue in post-production so, but they have to be able to mouth simple things he's like okay i'm up for the challenge so he changed it all and then they just didn't use it they just <laughs> spoke english <laughs> that's hollywood for you you know changes its mind on things okay so now you can put that up now you can put uh-huh. this 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 grammar thing up so where this is the breakdown of the word septa septon in andalese we like why did he develop andalese isn't andalese common yes andalese is common in game of thrones but in blood moon the show that never was which is set thousands of years before it's before the andal invasion they were going to have the show portray the old tongue as English. So people would speak English and that would be the old tongue. And the Andal invaders would speak this new language, which the idea would be that's the language that eventually became common, which becomes English on TV. So that's a really cool idea. And they were also going to have the true tongue, though. And, and, and David had done a little work on the true tongue already because of one one. When one one's full name, one weg, one dar one, the translation is... I forget the exact translation, but it's something like big arm, big leg, thick leg. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah. It might have been like thick arm, thick leg, double thick. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's, it's like, I can think of It was neat. He talked about how he would. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you could sorry. get into euphemisms there. Yeah, thick uh, what? A third leg, huh? <laughs> it was neat how he would start off with like the little bits that existed in the book. And then grow from there. Yeah. Like use those as roots to expand on with fundamentals of language that he already knew. It was really intriguing to hear his process. Yeah, he would take whatever George had done and just go from there. And so in some cases, there was very little. It was like three words or something. But he was like, okay, well, this is my basis and everything, you know, it's a seed and it grows from there. Yeah, it's really, he's, it's, it's amazing to hear him talk. He's super smart. Um, okay, so. What's this other slide? This, this uh, other slide as you can see, will you read what it says? I can't remember what yeah, it says. Yeah, it's, well, I, I'm going to butcher what it says. In Novadon. No, just say it okay. in English. Okay, good. The wedding date is set for the Stark girl and the Casterly boy. The Stark girl and the Casterly boy. That was dialogue from Blood Moon. So there was going to be a Stark Lannister, well, maybe wedding. Casterly, the wedding yeah. might not have happened. because yeah, Casterly, not. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Casterly, not Lannister. That's an important distinction there, right? Yeah, probably the Lannisters are what ruined that uh, potential marriage. It's entirely, you might be right, because we're told that the speaker is some kind of Andal assassin. So this person might be trying to stop the wedding. <laughs> and yeah, and it, may, and it may be a Lannister, someone who's trying to like take over Cashler, or maybe Land the Clever's man, or Land himself. I don't know. Landall, you know. It is an interesting little clue, a little nugget of data we have about potential histories and yeah. insights you know hmm. so that was really cool that was really really neat um i really love seeing that it was another moment of what could have been but uh yeah so he's he did um, say a little bit about the script you want to say what you that story about the scripts for house of the dragon and blood moon uh which story oh you said that when he, he said the scripts for house of the dragon are the best he's read oh yeah yeah, yeah. But okay then yeah. when he was asked about Blood Moon scripts. He was like, yeah, they were yeah. okay. But- okay, yeah, let me clarify that. Yeah, Shay, basically what I say I said, but um, he was going through everything, right? Every show he's like he talked about, and he was saying, by the end, he was, someone asked him about the script for Blood Moon, because apparently, you know, as we know, we got can- you know, it got canceled because it wasn't good enough or whatever, and he just said, yeah, it was fine. You know, he was like, yeah, he, he wasn't, like I said, he's kind of a laid back guy. He's not going to get really emphatic about it. He's like, yeah, it was, it was okay. But someone asked him about House of the Dragon script, which he's worked on. He said it's the best he's ever seen. 
<laughs> so, and he worked on Dune. So and he worked on Dune. Yeah, he worked like, on. He's worked on some. He's worked on some seasons. crappy stuff, but he's worked on some good stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, he I, I trust in him being like pretty honest with that. He's got some perspective. Yeah. yeah. So maybe don't get too hype about that. Keep your expectations managed. But that's great news, right? Like that's certainly not, you can't say it's bad news. It's definitely good news. Um. So we'll we'll see. You know, your mileage may vary. Your you know all our opinions are our own, but it uh, makes me uh, makes me a little more excited. A mm-hmm. uh, couple other things. Um, another awesome thing about House of the Dragon that we're really excited about is that he said, okay, remember how I said Game of Thrones was the first show ever to approach language experts, people who had made language before, to make a language? Well, this is House of the Dragon is the first show to ever have script, written language made by language experts. Because you're like, you ask the same question. Well, Aziz, I've seen scripts from fake languages all over the place. It's like, yeah, David told us that it's 100% of the time, it's been the art department. Whatever show, whatever movie, it was the art department that did that. So it's there's no rules, no language, no orders, no construction. It just looks cool. So this is a working scripted language. He says it's going to be all over the show. There's going to be writing all over the place, script, runes, just stuff everywhere. I asked him about that scene in uh, under Dragonstone when when they in that cave with the the different markings and such on the walls. I was like, was that did that have meaning? Did you write that? He's like, oh, that was all trash. He's like, yeah, it was like completely yeah. shrugged all that off. Yeah. He's like, no, that didn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, he was like, nah, nah. I was like, nah, those symbols, that was just art department. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he was pretty good. He's like, he's like, nah, this should have been our job. It should have been the language people's job to do that. <laughs> and um, he, he's got a point there. So, so that's exciting that they're going to incorporate written Valyria into the show. Um, and that'll be a lot of it. Um. He also said that, like, some one person asked a question about Bravosi. They were like, Bravosi would have been a really cool language to do because it's, it's it comes from a variety of places with the slaves and everything. And it's just a really unusual origin for language. He's like, yeah, that would have been cool because <laughs> yeah. he really did want to do that. He's like, he basically pitched it to them and they were like, yeah, Bravosi, that'd be cool. Okay, next. You know, next, next item on the agenda, like, he got brushed off, basically. But yeah. on the plus side, he's like, look, y'all. They're doing all kinds of Game of Thrones shows. I could do Bravosi then. Maybe Bravosi will get done in some other show that's coming along. And Andalese, Children of the Force, those Roynar. are done. He doesn't Roynish. have to redo them. What's that? He could do Roynar. Roynar, Roynish. yeah. So Roynar, Roynar. that'd be sick. Mm. Um, like he, he, they actually wanted him to do a little bit of Larathi, but they scrapped it. That was for Game of Thrones, not for House of the Dragon. So, um, and he might be doing Lysine or like a dialect of Lysine for because of the. Um, he was a little cagey about it, but he might be doing Lysine for uh, the Lyseni aspect of Dance yeah. of Dragons. Like, there's a lot of Lyseni, the, the family. Of, yeah, you know, like Kragos. Uh, yeah, or, yeah. You know, so there could be a lot of opportunity for that. Mm. Um, so the Children of the Forest language will, will certainly find its place eventually in one of these sh- projects. And same with um, same with maybe some of the other ones that haven't been done yet. Maybe may, Andalese maybe never will get used. That one maybe <laughs> there's just a chance yeah. for it. So that thing on screen was the breakdown of the verb uh, of Septa that was on screen before. He has that for the whole language, basically. <laughs> um, one other thing, uh, just about some actors he worked with. He said that in season one, Ian Glenn was the most excited about working with a Conlang. He was really, really embraced it, was was nerding out with him about it, was just excited, just like really put a lot of effort into it. So that's cool. Um, he was extremely impressed with Natalie Emanuel because Natalie Emanuel has to do 
translation dialogue, <laughs> right? Mm. I, I seem to remember he also said that she, um, that they they didn't give her a lot of instruction. Yeah, on like the, the context that, they, that her and other actors working with her on their own kind of figured out how to interpret what David had provided, and it, that he was giving her a lot of credit for doing it well, doing it appropriately. Because mm. she, she's supposed to be translating dialogue that's not in her script, because remember, they don't give everyone everyone else's lines. So she's supposed to be responding. She's translating a line that she can't hear, that <laughs> she can't see. So he's, they, they had to like get around that a little bit, and like, well, maybe she should know what's being said to her first. Like that she's, her role's a little different here. Uh, so that was, that was good to hear. So he, he had a lot of praise for her. The person he had the most praise for in terms of talent for language was Jacob Anderson, Grey Worm, who is going to be... An interview with a vampire. Interview with a vampire. He's Louie for Interview yeah. with the Vampire show that's starting up soon. Yeah. He said that he's just really talented. Like, he, he said that he was the only one better than him. Was like, mm. like as far as... because he's a musician. Like, I mean, da- Jacob yeah. Anderson is a rapper, you know, a hip-hop yeah. artist, so it kind of makes sense to me that he would be good with his words. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, both those things. Acting, you, know, like, you got a uh, good uh, Yeah, acting and, and, that, but, and music. But language is uh, so Rapping, hard. yeah. So he said he's just really a lot of pressure. He was like, yeah, he just picked it up really fast. He was just really good at it. He's like, yeah, only person I've ever met who's better than me at it. <laughs> it's like he was really impressed by Grey Worm, by Jacob Anderson. So that's awesome. Um, I think that's all I have from David J. Peterson News. That's, I hope you all enjoyed that. It was really inter- really informative, really neat. If you ever get a chance to hear him speak, Oh, he said one other, one thing that wasn't relevant to languages. Um, but in my panel, he said that during um, – the early days of Game of Thrones, HBO paid NBC for a bunch of those references. Like that's the why The Office, Parks and Recreation had like an Parks Iron Throne. Rex. Like they paid for that, so that was just a random little thing. It helped permeate it into culture. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the build the hype. And I'm I, sure on my own... NBC probably would have paid them for yeah, it if yeah. they could go back in time. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> interestingly, in my research and like references, I I remembered and uh, rediscovered those um that you know HBO also paid a bunch of rappers to do those three mixtapes, the Catch the Throne volumes one and two, and for the throne, and that was specifically to reach out to to try to target like more diverse youth by targeting them with rap music their their favorite rapper is doing a game of thrones song would get them conceivably to watch game of thrones and i think it worked well whatever they did works yeah. in general so but, yeah, saying, like, yeah. Yeah, but you know, that's even, interesting to know uh, even yeah. game of thrones had to do like very like targeted marketing you know advertising it wasn't just like Word of mouth blowing up like they, they targeted people. That's clever. Makes sense. Like, that's the new. I mean, it's a new normal. Probably. I mean, not every show does that, obviously. But <laughs> and they weren't doing it for season one before it was. You know, before it took off. I think yeah, it was like, maybe we got... should commission a rap album to promote history. <laughs> <laughs> That was another exciting thing for me personally was uh, connecting and with people in person to like start talking about potential collaborations because that is what happens yeah, at cons is that you. True get to talking and the next thing you know you work together on something and so i can uh i'll i'll uh, say it out loud here and vocalize it because i'm pretty excited about it our very own brand brand the builder brandon winslow who does um a lot of 3d art um is going to do a house of the dragon intro for our house of the dragon coverage like yeah, how we have our cool. our special intro for these episodes Anyways, he's going to be doing uh, one for that. So I'm putting him on the spot there. But yeah. it's pretty exciting stuff to, to think about. Speak it into reality. No, yeah. he was gonna... <laughs> uh, okay, final thoughts? I think I talked. Hmm? Uh, I was just going to say, I think I might have talked more about um, Better Call Saul than 
Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is it's on the air. My mind it right is now. on the air right now, and Game of Thrones isn't. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. I haven't been able to watch, Sean, because I I can't be in the same room as Aziz. Yeah, we're not caught up yet. Mm. We haven't yeah. seen the Monday's episode still. It was anyway. So, so no spoilers. Yeah. I'll, I'll be careful. Next okay. week we have Chris Stewart from the History of China. We're going to talk about Yi Ti. So we're kind of back to Valar Reredus for the World of Ice and Fire. By arrangement by design we have also started a new dynasty in our crusader kings 2 stream um, and it's yt so <laughs> it's the righteous gemstone emperors <laughs> we have uh yeah we have garnet gemstone is our first emperor he he issued a mask mandate in the first he, he's insane our first character is has mental issues and he it, he issued a mask mandate no kidding uh he made everyone at court wear masks he's really handsome sorry Oops. I punched the mic by accident. He's really handsome, so it's weird that he wanted people to, to wear masks because they're only the kind of masks that cover, like, this part. So it covers the top of your nose, your forehead, your cheeks, not your mouth and nose. So it covers everything except your mouth and nose. So it's kind of funny <laughs> to see a mask that all, all covers everything except the part that we currently need to cover. And So they all have Batman yeah, cowls? Yeah, Is that what yeah pretty saying? much. Pretty much without the, without the ears. And then... And then at one point the game goes, the mask mandate expires, and he extended. So he extended the mask mandate. It's like very way too real here. <laughs> and we have characters named. Uh, we have our firstborn. We're Valerian looking. We married a. We, we have a. We have multiple wives because it's ET. And our first ch- children were Opal and Diamond, uh, a boy and a girl. And we have a girl named Obsidian. And, um, oh, nice. <laughs> And we have we have put people to death via tiger and metal bowl. Yes, that's our preferred methods of execution. Lovich commented, said, Asian themed playthrough, Aziz's love of incredibly bad puns. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. So that's Friday at uh, six o'clock every Friday. Most most Fridays at six o'clock Eastern. And we'll see you next Sunday for more of the regular Valar Reedus. Let's issue some thanks, folks. Thanks for coming out live. You guys uh, make these streams a lot better. Your comments and, and that's what this episode was all about. Yeah, specifically. This one, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Nina for her contributions on the regular. Thanks to all of our lovely patrons for the financial support that makes this all possible. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin for the music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and maps. And for helping um, design clothes for me. Um, We didn't mention that, but I did use art of his to design my own clothes for the con, and I will continue to do that. We've been talking. He's helping me to design like a a Weirwood shirt and dress. Anyways, we have some, I I don't know what it is, but we're designing fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and if you didn't get enough Ice and Fire Con coverage, head on over to Here Be Dragons. Stephen Stark and many of the Here Be Dragons folk were there, so they have their own experiences, own reports, own takes on some of the same events, stuff that we missed. There's always, that's one thing about a con is there is just so much FOMO. You can't, I mean, of course, if you didn't go, that's, there's even more FOMO, uh, but, but even when you're there, you just can't do everything. You know, like stopping to eat means you're like, I'm going to miss something. <laughs> so that's why it's, it's good to hear from several people. Yeah. yeah if I want to say real quick, if I ran into you at the con and we're not following each other on some social media, please follow me. I'll follow you. And if you didn't go, please go. I don't know if this episode has got anyone excited about it, but man, it's such, I swear to God, there's like 10 highlight moments of my life 
at each con. <laughs> this most exciting thing there, if you told someone, it would be a great story. But the fourth thing is even more amazing than that. So they're, they're so cool and so fun. And I, I apologize if I didn't get a chance to meet you there. But I'll, I'll try to make a point of meeting as many people as possible. But Me too. I Same here. Same really here. encourage yeah, everyone to go. It's, uh, it can be hard to... Uh, strike up a conversation with someone i have to say even myself you might be like oh ashaya everyone knows who you are why can't you just go up to someone well that's really really awkward to be like hey i saw you across the hall and i know you're a listener of mine hi <laughs> yeah, like, like, i don't no, actually I'm know your name I, uh... <laughs> I, well yeah and as long as i'm like i know their name but i feel very weird being the one to come up so like <laughs> i feel it on my side so if you were at the con but didn't quite feel bold enough to come up and say how I'll just I tell you that I can relate uh, to that. I almost forgot the trivia no answer. No pressure, but yeah. I do want you to feel better about coming up to me at least. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> all right, so yes. the trivia answer, and then we're done for today, folks. The question was, again, what are Tommen's cats' names? There's only four named cats in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. All four of them live at the Red Keep. There's Balerian, the cat that leads Arya downstairs, but Tommen's kittens are Boots, Lady Whiskers, and Sir Pounce. Yes, yes. Great names for cats. I couldn't think of Lady Whiskers. I knew the other two, but not that one. Apparently Lady Whiskers is the dominant one. She's the one that stole the rat from Sir Pounce. And Cersei said, Sir Pounce has to learn to defend his rights if in this yeah. world of my, whatever she says. It's like, yep, there's got to be foreshadowing in that somewhere. There's a symbol. This is symbolic somehow, isn't it? Yeah, but that's for another time. Thank you all for coming. We hope you enjoyed our coverage of... Ice and Fire Con of David J. Peterson's language information drops and his an- anecdotes from behind the scenes, as well as all of our corrections, comments, and clarifications from Valoritas to date in 2022. And if you want to see the Ice and Fire Con photos that were shared in this episode at your leisure, you can go to my Twitter at Miranese Not. I tweeted a photo album with like 250 al- pictures, but we'll be sharing more pictures soon. Yep. All right, folks. We'll see you next week for more. Velar Reredus. We forgot to show y'all a cat. So here's Xerxes in the box. Just a little outro for you. Oh, and he's stretching. Yeah, anyways. Now now I'll just leave this on until he leaves. How about that? We'll just let the stream keep going. Does that sound good to y'all? No, anyways. <laughs> Xerxes looks cozy. He was there for about half the episodes he got into that box. Um. Anyways, there y'all go. Bye. Valar re